0: Oh my god.
1: So uh did you just finish rereading Cat's Cradle like today or or what?
0: Yeah, no, I actually uh, I was gonna it's a, a very short book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um I I don't know how many words it is. It's classified as one of his novels, but like the, the book that I have, everything, it's about, it's a little under 300 pages. It's like wait,
1: 270 what's your, pages. Wait, what's your, is it this
0: one? No, I have this one.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, mine is about 287, I believe. And I, I guess the reason why I feel short is, uh, I mean, you, you have tons and tons of uh, uh chapters, right? You have like something like 100 and what is it? Um uh 127 chapters, you know, like there's going to be like some white space, but uh, it actually didn't feel that short to me simply because since it is 127 chapters and everything is this kind of little discrete part, it's very kind of concentrated. You know what I mean?
0: Well, it's, yeah, I know it's a very rich text. I mean, you certainly could, you, you could read it very slowly. I've read it four or five times in the past. So it wasn't like I needed to, uh, it wasn't like I was experiencing it for the first time. Like if we do the, uh, the, the Jones book that you suggested in a month or two, mm-hmm. that, that, that's something I've never read before. I'll probably have to go a little bit slower to sort of, to get everything that I mm-hmm. should get out of it, uh, for a discussion. But, um, you know, this is something I was just rereading, but I mean, if you're just sort of, you know, like if you're just reading it and not necessarily like you know, trying to, to, to experience all the richness or whatever, you could read it in like three hours probably, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I don't know how many words it is, but the, the copy that I have, there's a lot of white space and it's like, you know, the, the, the font sp- or the, the paragraph spacing is like probably one and a half spaces, mm-hmm. you know, between lines or one and a quarter. So it's, in terms of word count, it's probably like straddling the line between a novel and a novella. You know, because it is—it is like it's pretty short, but it's—it's it's got a lot in there. I mean, it is—it is one of the richest in terms of like how much you can get out of it versus how many words it is. It's probably one of the richest texts I've—I've I've, I've ever read.
1: And, and and you so you've read it before a few times, but uh, you told me that. Uh, for the first time, like you just realized that this really is when a bonnet gets best. I, I I agree with that. I think it's probably for me, number two or number three, number one being slower House five and then, you know, breakfast of champions uh, being somewhere in the top three. Like, well, like, what, what do you, what do you think changed for you um, in terms of that? Like, why, why, why did it, why do you think like you didn't see some of the richness before?
0: Um, well, part of it is that I'm a little better better educated in political theory and stuff now than I was when I was younger and there's a lot of, you know, it is like explicitly about religion and the and the point that like oh, you know, religion is can be good because it can, you know, give people a sense of purpose even if it's false. You know, like that is kind of a pat and an obvious point, but in reading it this time with a, a slightly more mature perspective and also maybe a little more worldliness and more of a historical grounding, like there's a, there's a lot of stuff in here. And I don't know how much of it was specifically conscious on Vonnegut's part because he was a like a socialist anarchist and he wasn't uh, like anthropology was one of his like avocations. I think his either his undergraduate or his master's degree was in anthropology. Uh, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of stuff you know, either consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously in here that, you know, if you don't have that kind of grounding, you don't necessarily pick up on a first reading and it, it, it can kind of read as a little bit like, I mean, it's good, but it's a little bit of an obvious point. Like, oh, religion is, is you know, a socially cohesive and useful thing, but with a a little bit more worldliness, like, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on. And also I just wasn't as sensitive to to literary richness when i was younger you know and, and when i first read it so there's a lot like literarily also that's going on here that is not necessarily obvious on the first reading uh that if you're a little more versed in that kind of stuff kind of flowers forth for you on subsequent readings
1: did, did, did you take the religious aspect like you know religious values uh that you just discussed um did you view that specifically through the lens of religion because to me like yes you know you can make that point about uh religion you know give like a like a noble lie giving people some sort of sense of purpose but uh i think it's just as applicable to like literally you know uh any value system i mean by definition you know a, a, any value system is going to be a kind of lie like when i was doing a uh, ox herding tale uh, last month with joe um you know there was that part in the book where you know uh the protagonist just kind of like says you know these are all lies and you know um the the veterinarian that he's speaking to is like well what what set of values aren't right so i i i think this definitely uh to me at least like goes well beyond just religion although religion being so familiar right as a thing for most people mm-hmm. um you know it's it's the kind of like you know obvious way to communicate this question of values and especially like an absurdist religion like this um it it allows you to communicate this this question of values uh, in a way where you'd be open to, you know, critiquing those values, right? Whereas, like, if this was just like an allegory, like with like Christianity or whatever, you know, like tons of people will be, you know, too offended and too sort of, you know, uh, have their guards up, right? Uh, yeah. About that sort of thing.
0: I mean, I think when I was younger, I just you're you're absolutely right that it sort of applies to any set of values that you. Know, I mean, it's not really about religion; it's about like spirituality. You know, which is a concept that goes beyond religion. You know, it's a it's it's a larger uh, it's a larger driving force in human life. And you know, in some ways, I've also been a lot more sensitive to and thinking a lot more about like spirituality and ontology and meaning making. You know, a lot in the last year because you know what else are you going to do when everybody is stuck inside as much as they when you can't you know you don't have as many distractions available to you in the last year as as americans typically have had for most of my adult life Mm -hmm. so it's just something that i've had to think about you know and it's something that in the milieus that i that i kind of frequent like the, the sort of like leftist i mean it used to be twitter i blocked that now but like twitter and podcasting and other scenes it's something that people are consciously wrestling with right now because it does sort of it feels like the missing ingredient in terms of a, like, in terms of what could possibly change the rather fucked up system that we inhabit. You know, it, mm-hmm. like it, it feels like the thing that like the disconnect is happening on the level that like p- like like people can maybe recognize the the virtue in an alternative system, but if it doesn't connect with them on kind of a deeper level, it's the, you know they'll find every reason to. You know, to poo-poo it or to find holes in it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just it's uh, it's something that I'm more sensitive to now in this specific like you know material moment, and also just you know at this point in my life. You know, like, as a young person, you're also not. Um, and I mean, I guess I'm still a young person. You know, I'm only 31, but you know, as as someone in your teens or your 20s, you don't you don't think about that stuff as much because the the like the concept of of death and like what the world that will survive you is going to be like are not as real for you and i'm not Mm -hmm. you know i'm still relatively young but like my foot and my ankle hurt a lot recently Mm -hmm. you know i've been having a lot of problems with that you know i i've been I, i found that i um i have more if i were to to drink i have more negative effects from it you know like i am aware of my own mortality, uh, in a way that I wasn't as much when I was younger. And so the, 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 the spiritual and ontological richness of this text is, is more apparent to me now, uh, especially now that I'm more versed in like history and political theory and other things that it also sort of builds on and relates to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And so, um, like the, the 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 surface level of it that is a little obvious that can that can lead you to dismiss it, sort of falls away when you engage it on those deeper levels, and mm-hmm. and which it, it does kind of demand to be engaged on those deeper levels.
1: Yeah. Um, let, let's let's just actually introduce uh, the text, right? Uh, maybe people. Uh, haven't read it before maybe this yeah. uh conversation would get them to want to read it so this is uh this is uh, i guess a kind of like you know black comedy slash uh, uh satire uh partly on the um uh, atomic bomb perhaps and other things as well um and it it uses this like you know made up religion uh this like kind of like i guess semi-absurdist religion called uh, uh um maybe that's the way you pronounce it uh i've always thought of it in that like that Uh, bacchananism that uh, also is like a is a very kind of like you know artificially constructed religion um you know from the 20th century that starts to like really like cohere into a system uh you have this like interesting dynamic where the narrator and protagonist um john who at the beginning says call me jonah um he keeps saying that you know bacchananism is just this kind of like series of lies but first of all he still considers himself a Baconianist, even you know by the time that the book ends, right? So even if he considers it a lie for whatever reason, he decides to uh, stick with this lie. And the second part is, uh, although you know he calls it a lie, and other people sort of you know uh, call their religion a lie, uh, and is like it's a, it's built in a series of lies. It says you know tons of stuff that is just. Um, it's interesting and true in some ways, right? I mean, we're going to go over some of the like, kind of like, uh, Bon mots and some of the, um, you know, uh, some of the sayings, some of the, uh, uh things that kind of like really, uh, stuck to my mind. Uh, some of the phrases are just really, are just kind of like really memorable. Um, and, uh, so to the extent that it's like a, a black comedy, uh, it's a book where you, you essentially have a kind of like, uh, end of the world, right. With this, Uh, ice nine that um is uh, i guess supposed to be a kind of stand-in for the atomic bomb in some ways and um it it begins with john uh trying to write a book on uh what what was happening uh, on the day of the uh hiroshima uh, atomic bombing and he wants to interview uh, Franklin Hoinecker, right? Who is the son of Felix Hoenecker in the book? And in the book, Felix is the scientist that is mostly credited with uh, having invented uh, the bomb. Uh, he, you know, the name sounds a little bit like Robert Oppenheimer, right? Who is uh, considered kind of like the father of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure, you know, to what degree their personalities were similar, but it wouldn't su- it wouldn't surprise me if, like, a uh, they were similar in B. Like, in, you can imagine many universes in which the way that scientists are being described in this book as these kind of like amoral agents, like, you can imagine, you know, scientists who are just kind of tasked with like, you know, creating weapons of mass destruction. You can imagine them, you know, acting as as amoral agents, like in their own heads, right? Uh, sort mm-hmm. of like treating, you know, the world uh, as a plaything, as their own kind of playpen, um, and anyway, like the 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 book uh, like first creates this interesting kind of like base, right? Where like for the first third, you get like tons and tons of like little characterizations. And from that point forward, right? Cause this, you know, this isn't just like a work of philosophy, right? If you think of like, you know, some of the worst books by people like Sartre or Camus, uh, you know, the, the philosophy is always like center stage here. You definitely get this like base of like very rich characterization for the first third. And that becomes a springboard for, you know, the philosophy and everything else that comes uh, as a result of it. Um, uh, um, I'm not sure if you if you have anything you want to add like in terms of like to like just characterizing the book before we get to like some of the individual chapters and whatnot.
0: Um, no uh, nothing really except that it, perhaps contextualizing the book in terms of like Vonnegut's overall corpus is mm-hmm. useful because Vonnegut started off as kind of a you know, like a niche science fiction writer. And he sort of became more of a a literary scion of his generation over time. And especially because he was, he was especially popular in Europe. He was like his popularity in Europe is sort of what propelled him to popularity in America. And his first three books, I, I don't remember if I've ever read mother night. Uh, I've read player piano and I've read the sirens of Titan and While they are definitely Vonnegutian or (laughs) whatever phrase you want to use, uh, uh, they are a little more in the vein of traditional science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, This is sort of like straddling the line between what he did in his early career and then what he would do in books like uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of Champions and Galapagos and and some of his, his later books where... Uh, you know, science, the science fiction aspects are maybe more instrumental to a larger point that he is trying to make. Um, And, and it's also, uh, you know, a lot of his later works became sort of like, you know, he had like his, his literary universe or whatever, the same way that Marvel has with the, with the cinematic universe now, or that our, our friend Dan has with his his books that often take place in like a a connected universe where people could from one book could at least theoretically know or have contact with someone from another book Mm -hmm. um this is a little more uh, more disconnected and you know in, in terms of that sense uh you know the book is often about like useful fiction so within his corpus it's almost like a useful fiction relative to the like you know more connected works that uh, that he produced uh, you know later in his career, um, but it also well I guess there's other stuff we can get into later, but there's a lot of stuff that like actually happened later that it kind of prefigures that I that I that I think is interesting and it sort of shows the way that like art. You know the the pursuit of art can give you insights into like like the future directions of society that like pure uh philosophical or theoretical uh speculation or sociological research cannot quite get you to so we can get into that
1: yeah i actually uh read uh mother night a couple times most recently sometime the last uh, uh six months uh, it's definitely closer to to these books um I actually haven't read uh si- sirens of a titan or player piano but uh, I-, I would consider Mother Night to be like very much in the kind of like you know Vonnegut vein that that, that I uh know of um and uh j- but just like you know like just i guess a couple comments like stylistically uh so like I said yeah so 127 chapters over in my edition about like 286 pages. The, you know he, he said something I, I forget where this was, but uh he says that when he approaches uh, his writing right uh, uh he has like a just like a series of jokes right uh, every chip in his uh mosaic right of a book is a is a joke right and he wants them to all fit together in some way um and th- this definitely has that feel right I mean if you think about a book with that many chapters and yet so few pages comparatively, uh, this allows an author like, like, so like, you know, if, if you're going to approach this from a writerly perspective, right. And you're, you're going to wonder, you know, how can I use some of this for my own writing or, or um, you know, what is the purpose of all this? Well, having this many chapters as kind of like discrete units allows an author to really kind of like slip in and out, right. Create kind of, you know, little lessons in a chapter, let's say, in another chapter you could invert, One of these lessons or you could, you know, reflect it in some way, or you could refract it in some way, or you could emphasize a different portion of it. Um, It also allows like an author to like really experiment a lot with just the fact that, you know, uh, chapter beginnings and endings are very, very important. Like I remember Dan uh, said a long time ago that sometimes he would go to like libraries and he would like scan through books to see whether they were good or not just by, you know, looking at, you know, chapters, uh, chapter beginnings and endings, because it is sort of true that if you have just like, you know, shitty chapter endings, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, uh, it's, it's it's probably a, a, a good indication that the rest of the book isn't good simply because... You know, for something that important for an author to, like, not understand that it's that important and to kind of, like, treat it as dismissively as many authors do, you know, that that probably is an indication for the rest. But, you know, just to give an example of what I'm saying, so just, like, you know, randomly, like, opening up to, like, a chapter ending. uh, uh, She broke my heart. I didn't like that much, but that was the price. In this world, you get what you pay for. He proposed a gallon toast sweethearts and wives he cried right so that kind of you know gets into some of the kind of you know uh, uh, romantic parts in the book you know you have this kind of like ironic twist that you wouldn't really expect right from something that is like semi semi semi-romantic right that's like a little inversion in in and of itself
0: or or or, or just to reinforce the point like you know a different one uh Uh, Dr. Schlichter von Königswald now came out of Papa's suite looking very German, very tired. Mm -hmm. You can see Papa now. We'll be careful not to tire him, Frank promised. If you could kill him, said von Königswald, I think he'd be grateful.
1: Yeah, you know, and, like I, you get a ton of stuff, just you know, uh, characterization, like of you know of, of the German, right? But then you you also get you know uh, uh, moving a- along the plot, right? What's happening with Papa at that point in the book?
0: Yeah, it's you know, it's just something. I mean, it, in some ways, it's just the degeneration of the novel as like a form. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the the novel is not as important to intellectual or cultural life as it used to be right now and so like lessons that authors you know like like vonnegut comes you know kind of at the tail end of when novels were like culturally you know hyper relevant form you know mm-hmm. and so he's he's drawing on a lot of uh, of what is evident from like you know probably a one to two hundred years of like novel writing you know and so he he is making use of a lot of things but as, as the cultural axis shifts more towards movies and then now it's kind of shift towards video games and and, and YouTube videos, a lot, a lot, people that are writing novels now, they're not, I mean, A, they're not necessarily culturally plugged in because people that write novels now are more likely than they were in the past to be like, you know, not of the, the privilege or the hegemonic class, you know, they're more likely to be black or trans or... Uh, you know, from the Third World or something like that. And so they are, are not as plugged into, like, like, novel writing as an end in and of itself. But also, like, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that it's, like, theoretically competing with that, you know, it's like the, the, the something that works in one medium is not necessarily commensurable with another medium and so you know if, if your your main engagement with art is like television or something like that what makes for a good ending to an episode of television is not necessarily what makes for a good ending to a chapter in a work of art and you, like like there there are, are generalizable principles that maybe apply to both but there are also specifics to the medium that you that you cannot draw on you know between uh uh between different media that that people are not necessarily tuned into because they're you know they're not focused in on 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 the specific craft of the form that they're working in
1: yeah i mean you know when i think of some of the stuff it's like um you know, a, a, a part of me wants to, like, sort of believe, right, and I, I guess I do sort of believe like what, what Dan Schneider argues, right, that, you know, art is cyclical, uh, art is sort of kind of, you know, going through a period of waning. Um, on the other hand, like, uh, I, I do think there has been some sort of, like, cultural shifts where... Uh, like people are just kind of structuring society or allowing it to be structured in a way where, you know, art just no longer has as many incentives as it used to have Uh, the novel, right? Like, 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 honestly, like people can't fucking sit down and read. I mean, you you, you were talking about this recently, how like, you know, it was a struggle to like get back to like actually reading, right. Uh, To, to get back to like, you know, like just sitting down regular with something. And uh, I, I guess I didn't have it, you know, as, as as bad as you in that regard, but I definitely noticed like issues with my attention span. You know, I try to like use my phone as little as possible. Uh, um, you know, last few years of just like, you know, just just working uh, all the time. Like these like, I don't know, like fucking like 10, 12 hour days. Like my mind was always like, you know, on other things. And now that I'm like, have been like getting back to, trying to just be surrounded you know with like nothing but things that are valuable like when i take my walks now um you know it's like a, a couple hours a day altogether. like i was just the past the past uh, week not the past week it took only about a day i uh read um uh, frederick douglas's uh a, a slavery narrative and you know i remember like just telling my wife like i can't fucking wait to like wake up and just like take a walk and, and listen to it because i started I started listening to it like the night before and it was just, it was just so well written. I was kind of shocked at how good it was. You know, it was mm-hmm. like on par with uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois um, and other like classic, like black writings. Um, and, you know, the fact that I, I feel myself now, these cravings are, are coming back. Right. I feel like I'm so excited now about the arts again. And I, I want to surround myself, you know, with things that matter. That's not an experience that most people a have, or B, most people are not on the, in the position to have that experience. I'm very lucky in that regard, right? That I have the leisure, mm-hmm. right? That I have the ability to like, you know, walk around for a while and just like do this and just absorb all this stuff. But I really do think that society is being restructured where, you know, uh, uh, just fewer and fewer people are able to like literally sit down with a book right or or if they if they will take walks and they're going to listen to something you know in their i want to say headphones but of course now it's going to be you know it's going to be pixel buds or whatever um they're going to listen to podcasts right they're going to listen to music they're going to listen to things that even if they do have like cultural value i think like the be- best podcasts for example do definitely have cultural and perhaps even some artistic value Uh, they're still kind of like lowest common denominator in some ways, right? I mean, they're just not as difficult, right? Like walking with Frederick Douglass, like you literally do have to be in a meditative state. Like I remember like uh, when I came home yesterday, it was like, holy shit. Like I I walked for an hour and I didn't remember anything about the walk. Like it was just like, I was a zombie just in my own head. And, you know, with anything other than books, it's, you know, it's much easier to, be forced into this kind of de facto multitask, right? Which is just like more the ways that your attention is being spent. Yes.
0: No, that, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I mean, there is also, you know, kind of just a materialist explanation of everything, which is, you know, you know these, these things are not generating the profits that they once did, especially as, they get split amongst different media you know like uh, as podcasts and video games and other contemporary forms of like creative engagement get added to the mix you know the the only way to consistently make a profit is to dumb it down Mm -hmm. you know is to gravitate toward the lowest common denominator because the, the only way to it's the same logic that propels like big box retailers you know they don't make much profit on any individual thing. They make profit because they make like a penny on each shirt that they sell. you know but they sell a million shirts you know or, or, or you know whatever is the the, the mm-hmm. article in question and and the system as a whole, while it has slightly different interests to like an individual, uh you know denizen of it or an individual proprietor it it has a similar logic that it it you know mm-hmm. and so it, it, and also like we live more fractured lives as well you know we're less likely to have like uh uh you know a stable job that we stay in for like 30 years and we retire with a pension or a 401k or something like that you know people of our generation are more likely to be Jumping from job to job, constantly mm-hmm. looking for like, what is the opportunity that is going to maximize like, uh, you know my uh, you know you know the gain from my career choice or my or, or, or whatever, and so that's like that's going to have ripple effects into your media consumption habits and your intellectual engagements and your and your your spiritual proclivities and whatever, yeah. you know I mean that's just that that's like even if you're not a, even if you're not uh, 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 materialist like philosophically like that is a basic element of you know materialist uh, analysis that i think is true regardless mm-hmm. you know
1: yeah and you know like you using that you know like going to like leonard Schlein's art and physics uh to get back to vonnegut uh you know um you know, if, if Schlaine is arguing that, you know, these visual artists are sort of like anticipating, you know, future shifts in scientific understanding, uh, in that conversation, I emphasize that um, you know, we should extrapolate it, you know, this into the arts more broadly, right? Like writing will anticipate some of these movements in the future. You know, who knows whether you know, a book like Cat's Cradle with 127 chapters, like you know what if it is getting uh, at some with that kind of fracture you know and anticipating it you know beforehand right people are just capable of like little little uh chapters at a time but that's kind of, that's kind of the way that i read it honestly i you know uh, in between like the various work uh, uh uh that i'm doing now um i would read like a quick like chapter two chapters take some notes see if i want to discuss it you know put it in my little uh you know in uh, a notepad and sort of you know keep kind of like slipping little by little you get five minutes here, you get 10 minutes there, you get an hour there and, you know, you're able to sort of, you know, get a lot done like that. And that's another thing about, you know, these kinds of fractures. I mean, yes, your time is fractured. Yes. It's less efficient. Yes. It's less effective, but there are ways uh, to sort of get around it where, you know, if you really think about how days get split up, how books get split up, how novels get split up, there are like little efficiencies that, that you could uh, plug up. Um, and I think we should just like get into like, um, like the first chapter, I want to read uh, uh, the whole of it, right? So people get a sense of really what the style is like and and what uh, Vonnegut is doing or what he's getting at. So Mm -hmm. chapter one is titled The Day the World Ended, right? So like in terms of like a writerly inversion, right? Um, You probably wouldn't normally start with, you know, uh, an ending first. And that's kind of like a small little thing, right? Some writers do that, some don't. Um, But that's like a little uh, thing that he does. It's kind of like Vonnegut-esque. Call me Jonah. My parents did or nearly did. They called me John. Jonah, John, if I had been a Sam, I would have been a Jonah still. Not because I have been unlucky for others, but because somebody or something has compelled me to be certain places at certain times without fail. Conveyances and motives, both conventional and bizarre have been provided. And according to plan, At each appointed second, at each appointed place, this Jonah was there. Listen, when I was a younger man, two wives ago, 250,000 cigarettes ago, 3,000 quarts of booze ago, when I was a much younger man, I began to collect material for a book to be called The Day the World Ended. The book was to be factual. The book was to be an account of what important Americans had done on the day when the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. It was to be a Christian book. I was a Christian then. I am a Bakaninist now. I would have been a Bakaninist then if there had been anyone to teach me the bittersweet lies of Bakanin. But Bacchananism was unknown beyond the gravel beaches and coral knives that ring this little island in the Caribbean Sea, the Republic of San Lorenzo. We Bacchananists believe that humanity is organized into teams, teams that do God's will without ever discovering what they are doing. Such a team is called a carasse by Bacchanan, and the instrument, the con that brought me into my particular carasse was the book I never finished the book to be called, The Day the World Ended. Um, let's actually do like a uh, chapter uh, two as well, uh, titled okay. Nice, Nice, Very Nice, which kind of just elaborates on this a little bit. If you find your life tangled up with somebody else's life for no logical reasons, writes Bakanin, that person may be a member of your karas. At another point in the books of Bakanin, he tells us, Man created the checkerboard, God created the caras. By that, he means that a caras ignores national, institutional, occupational, familial, and class boundaries. It is as free form as an amoeba. In his 53rd Calypso, Bacchanan invites us to sing along with him. Oh, a sleeping drunkard up in Central Park and a lion hunter in the jungle dark. And a Chinese dentist and a British queen all fit together in the same machine. Nice, nice, very nice. Nice, nice, very nice. Nice, nice, very nice. So many different people in the same device. So that's the first two chapters of the book. Um, Yeah.
0: You know, it, it, it's like an interesting, uh, feature of like Baconanism Buc- uh, as it's depicted in the book that like sometimes the little fragments of poetry that we get are like kind of good yeah you know it's like it's like sometimes they're good and sometimes they're like complete doggerel but like you know regardless of what they are but, 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 but it's it's like,
1: good it's good doggerel you know what i mean
0: yeah 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 no it's like um who the fuck who's the 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 guy that Dan that Dan Schneider likes, uh, who Nash? No, um, older the 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 guy who wrote a poem about like someone shit his pants or something like that. Who was that? (laughs)
1: Wait, what? I don't know what this is. I God, this is
0: gonna. We we can keep going. I've gotta uh, figure this out. Um... But anyway, like it's you know intentional or not on vonnegut's part like it's it sort of recapitulates the the philosophical idea of the of the the literary device that is this religion which is like you know you can like you know what what, you can get something useful out of something that is not necessarily like totally uh commensurate with reality and if one is to say that like good art is art that in some way like reflects reality in some kind of imminent way and bad art is uh art that fails to do so in you know aesthetically or philosophically or whatever Mm -hmm. um like the fact that sometimes the poetry is good but sometimes and sometimes the poetry is bad but it always is at least kind of resonant with it is like a, a a nice uh you know a a nice uh literary um echoing of that flaw, of that idea
1: yeah I mean it's, it's it, it never seems uh uh like extraneous right like there's never like superfluous stuff here some of it is a little bit better than others but it's all kind of generally good and I mean like you know just in these first two chapters like you get that density right away right the opening lines call me Jonah my parents did or nearly did they called me John well you know call me Jonah obviously uh, uh, uh an allusion to call me ishmael in uh herman melville's moby dick and i mean like like immediately you just sort of think like okay so what is the purpose here so you have ishmael and moby dick uh that um you know like the uh you know a a a son of uh abraham uh it's the son that he has uh with his a uh, mistress uh uh Hagar. um he ishmael ishmael gets uh, eventually sort of like uh, i don't know if the term i would say exile but he gets sort of like turned out into uh, with with his uh, mother um into uh, the wilderness and eventually he gets saved by a, a miraculous like well of water that appears right and of course in moby dick he is saved by drowning so it's like an interesting kind of like little inversion and also the sense of like an outcast right i mean ishmael in in moby dick is uh kind of like separate from the the rest of the of the crew right he's highly philosophical he's observant right he definitely has this like literary uh uh quality to him and also i guess an outcast in the sense that if he's kind of like the sole survivor you know there's something there about him right that is supposed to kind of like make it on shore and uh you know come out with this book here we have um call me jonah um you know and, and jonah uh, of course like the, the most famous iteration of this name jonah from from the uh, book of daniel and in, in the bible right jonah gets instructed by god to to uh, go to the city of uh uh what it, i think the pronunciation is nineveh um and uh just to like you know inform them that you know if you don't repent right you're going to be destroyed And he, he says, you know what, like, I don't want to deal with this kind of responsibility. So he, he goes in the ship to try to like escape his responsibility. And because of that, God is angry. He sends a storm on the ship. uh, And he tells the the crew members to throw him overboard because he's, he's the one responsible. And um, they, they do so. He gets swallowed by the whale. Uh, He, he promises to go and, and do as God instructs. He goes to the city. uh uh, ironically he's kind of like you know pissed off at the city that they um uh that they like immediately kind of like accept what he's saying and now they start to repent and so they are saved from destruction and you know he gets like this he gets into more trouble with god where you know god sends like sort of the sun to sort of like bake him and he gets upset that the the leaf that is supposed to protect him is now kind of like withers and dies and um uh, you know, you, you you get this like a uh, dynamic where, you know, is this John right or jonah of the book, which by the way, like the the name is not mentioned again, um is he is he supposed to be this kind of like, you know, a uh, truth teller is he supposed to be this like, you know, uh, a figure of like, you know, telling the world of its coming destruction? Is the world supposed to like understand that? Is he, you know, reluctant in some way? You know, is there that kind of duplicity that you have in in Melville, right? Where if you say like, "Call me Ishmael," like, like, what is that exactly from? Like, is he saying that you know, my name is not really Ishmael, but call me that? um uh call me ishmael simply because there's like a symbolic power to it that we could draw from the bible you know why does he want to be called jonah and or is it all just this kind of like anti-symbol right like it's this like phrase that i use to refer to things that authors sometimes sort of like put in as breadcrumbs that are meant to kind of like get you thinking about something a certain way but perhaps there's really nothing underneath it in the way that typically you would have an illiterary work be placed into it. Right. So like an anti-symbol in that regard, which is itself like a very interesting kind of a technique to use. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, and, and it's like, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's, a kind of, it's such a kind of like beautiful phrasing, right? Like Jonah, John, if I had been a Sam, I would have been a Jonah still. Like, what does that mean? What is that about? Right. Um, or are we still, are we starting with those kind of cascading, you know, so-called lies of like the Um So and yeah, you know, he 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 was a Christian now, now he's saying that he's a baconist. Like, well, like what changed exactly and why? Is it because he experiences the the end of the world? Not that you would necessarily know this by the book start by by the start of the book, right? You don't know anything about ice nine or anything else at this point. Um Mm -hmm. well, I mean, it's sort of implied
0: in the book that he becomes a baconist because he's like extremely horny, mm -hmm. which is funny. Yeah. Um, but you know, it also Uh, you know, it's weird because in the internal logic of the book, it doesn't necessarily make sense because he's writing this for nobody. You know, like it, it, like it, like theoretically, the character is writing this book because, like, just because his religion sort of says that you should, you should write stuff down that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, as best you can to try to make sense of it, even though in all likelihood, you probably will not actually make the right sense of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of like Vonnegut as the author doing it I mean you know he was writing this as an American in the 1960s before everything had gotten so secularized you know I mean this was this is also like contextual like in terms of if you want to think about him writing this for the audience that is likely to read it it's you know contextualizing what is going to happen in the terms of something that the people that are most likely to read it might have an immediate association with
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: um but also uh in terms of like the parallelism to to moby dick it's it's an in like it's it's something that i think people are actually commenting on a lot right now uh when i see people talking about it on twitter and other social media talking like, about moby what? dick is is full of wait wait talking um, about talking about what Talking about Moby Dick, like when they, oh. cause I, especially during the pandemic, is that, I saw is that like, going around,
1: is that going around Moby Dick? It
0: has been. I, at least really? from, from what I've seen, like people, cause I think a lot of people were like, you know, it's, it's pandemic. I don't have anything to do. I'm gonna, you know, read something that's like old and challenging that I've maybe put off for a while. Um, and also just, you know, it's, it's a great book. So it's just going to kind of have like cyclical times in the sun, mm-hmm. you know, like people are going to find interest in it at different times and places for different reasons. Um, but like something that people seem to take a lot of like and like pleasure and enjoyment in is like how much of Moby Dick is composed of like uh, like factual information about whales and whaling that was like subsequently outmoded, you know like like stuff about whales that is like not true. mm-hmm you know, uh, just because he was writing at a time where we didn't know everything about whales that we know now. We didn't know that they were, uh, like, mammals in the way that we are. We didn't know that they had, like, we didn't know about brain folds. We didn't know that they had brains that were, like, you know, of comparable, uh, like, and folding and complexity to our own. But that, that quality, like, just actually does add something to the book, you know, like, it be, be both because the like the sections about whales and whaling in the book, like literarily uh, just add something to the, like to the establishing of the milieu that everything in it is operating within, Mm -hmm. you know, but also like as someone in 2021 reading it, like the sort of like, you know, like ecstasy that he has describing things that are like false is like infectious. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the idea that like, even, you know, even if your time is limited in terms of what it knows about the world materially, you know there is still something of like, you know, personal or spiritual or aesthetic or whatever value that you could draw from that wrong information that you are operating from, mm-hmm. and that's you know a central theme of this particular book. That that I, again, it, it's hard to say how much of this was intentional, but it works, you know. Like and 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 then so much of this book is about a fictional. Banana Republic in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. that uh like factual information about a thing that does not exist. And that's something that is lacking in a lot of science fiction writing, is that there's a lot of world building, but it's like world building for its own sake. It's not mm-hmm. world building to get at something that relates to a person's own life. It's world building just to, you know, to make the story legible to the audience. You yeah. know, and that and that's something that it, it, intuitively this book sort of grasps that that is both interesting and also just pleasurable.
1: Yeah, and I mean some of the themes that you just uh, touched upon, you know, these useful uh, uh, fictions and whatnot, and the pleasures behind them. Uh, again, like we only hear the names uh, Jonah john and sam you know exactly once and that's in the first page right they never come up again and yet actually his last name is the most important part of his name for the like for the
0: plot and the philosophy of the novel and we never learn what it is
1: well i mean it's just interesting to me how like you know um you you hear this name once and yet by the end of the book, although like he interacts with all these characters, and you actually get like a glut of like you know many different names. There are many different characters in this book. Uh, you never forget, you know, the intro. Like, oh yeah, his name is Jonah. Oh no, wait, his name's actually John, right? He says, "Call me Jonah." Like, in terms of like useful fictions, right? You know, is, is that name a useful fiction? And yet. You know it's 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 just such an interesting technique right you hear this only once in the first page and yet you never forget the name right you always have this association with him and jonah right because of the the, the you know the biblical story because of the fact that it's just this kind of like a very interesting way of like introducing the name um going further like you know these like useful fictions uh, let, you know, let, let let let's let's take it a face value that he believes that this religion is you know in some ways bullshit or you know the, the grounding of values like axiomatically in some ways is is bullshit or impossible philosophically or whatever. Um, you know, early on, like when you get introduced to some of this vocabulary, he says such a team is called a carass by Baconan, and the instrument the concon that brought me into my own particular corras was the book I never finished. So this. Karas, right? This like thing that is supposed to be your purpose. I mean, isn't that kind of true? Like, don't you have a kind of like niche that you always fill? Like, whether it's like, all right, so we're like, you know, we're kind of like in the cosmoetica universe, we're fulfilling some functions in the art world. If we were, you know, somebody else, you know, if we were like some other types, like we would also have a Karas, right? Like, that part is not bullshit you know, it may be bullshit to sort of grounded in this kind of religion, but there's actually something like very downright true about how early on this is being uh, uh, phrased, right? And, um, you know, when he gets into this like 53rd Calypso and that song, uh, yes, this is, you know, this is dog this dog rule, right? It's not like, you know, good poetry in, in that way, but um, it, you know, it, it adds very much to like, Exactly what we're talking about, right? That that crass, crass was just described. Like you're you're being told that as this book unfolds, um, you're going to have you know a diversity of people that seem to be doing various things or different things that are all kind of like fitting, you know, in in this uh, um, same device. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's
0: interesting because like it's both true and and it's also incoherent if you tease it out enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: have you ever seen um any of the James Burke uh, documentary series from the 1980s, like Connections and The Day
1: the Universe Changed? No, like who is James Burke? What is that?
0: Uh, James Burke was a like a British popular historian, and I, I think his prime was like the, the 70s and the 80s. But the book is all uh or sorry, the, the series, I think he did write a book version of it, but the the series are all about um sort of how uh like technology progressed over time and how you you, i i can't remember specific episodes but like how you you can trace like the existence of radar uh all the way back to like um uh you know stones that were used in ancient egypt to determine if something was real gold or fake gold Mm -hmm. you know it's about sort of the these, these stochastic and the jagged development of technology over time, how like something that one person discovers, you know, maybe interesting to them, but it's not necessarily useful until it becomes the groundwork for something that somebody else does 50 or hundred years later. Uh, and, and, and so like in, in a sense, the concept is very true in the sense that like we all operate in a kind of stochastic space. You know, we don't we're, like we just live our lives and we don't necessarily know the ripple effects of what it is that we do. But at the same time, on the terms of the, the book, like Felix Honecker is said to be like part of the main character, John's caress. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, he is a part of the caress of like every human being that has ever lived because his invention essentially kills the planet and the species. You know, like the mm-hmm. like the, the the mode of analysis uh, can break down uh, if it is applied too rigidly because it doesn't. Uh, you know, there are things that it can't possibly account for. But ultimately, like the idea of something being useful is not necessarily that it's universalizable in like every circumstance whatsoever. It's that it mm-hmm. serves as like a good heuristic for people to sort of you know like judge their actions in day-to-day life and make like
1: you know reasonably good decisions for themselves and for the species mm. you know well you know on another level though this um you know the, the ice nine that's uh, being invented like it's sort of I, I think some of the idea behind it is like, it's it's supposed to be so exotic and so kind of like, you know, human beings aren't supposed to fuck around in this way, right? Just like, you know, I assume with the atomic bomb, right, is some of the kind of implicit commentary, um, you know, so like in that way, he's not supposed to ever become anyone's like, you know, like part of like everybody's cross, right? Uh, and, you know, uh, but Conan, when he invents his religion, you know, nobody knows uh, that, the world's gonna end right he he doesn't know that and you know the analysis that it that it uh, allows for right is the analysis that is kind of like pre certain kinds of inventions you know what i mean um mm-hmm. and the and these like new new inventions are supposed to be these like you know uh, points uh points of no return even if ironically you know everything from the atomic bomb to something like ice nine it's um you know it's just an extension of what exactly you would expect right uh, out of human nature out of human beings right in yeah. in, 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 in some in some ways um yeah. i forget if there was like anything else uh well I, I guess i guess we could say like something about um oh uh before we get to that so you know uh, you mentioned that in the religion uh uh there's this kind of like you know compulsion right that you're being sort of like told to like always write down everything that you can um, you know, kind of like almost like for no reason whatsoever, you know, uh, the, the main reason being just, just because you can, I guess, in some ways, um, like, do, do you think that's like, just like a commentary on, you know, the arts and artistic values? Like if, you know, if, if, if Kurt Vonnegut himself were, you know, ever posed a question, you know, why exactly, you know, why do you write and why should anyone write, you know, uh, I think he would come up with a type of answer you know what i mean like and 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 I, i think that's probably like a good kind of value judgment for the arts as a whole in some ways
0: yeah well i mean the thing is like art is not like specifically justifiable you know like it's not uh like other than just because it's a thing that you can do that you enjoy like making and other people enjoy like Experiencing or consuming, you know, because in terms of like understanding things, you know, there are like better tools that we as humans have made over time, you know, understanding some
1: things. Maybe you know what I mean, but but I mean, well,
0: well, I mean, if you want to at least, and you know, it's the the an interesting thing to talk about with this book that we could maybe like sprinkle throughout is like in a sense it's like an anti enlightenment book. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of, like, philosophically. Because, the like, fundamentally, the principle of the Enlightenment is, like, you can understand uh, existence and life by sort of breaking it down into its constituent parts and applying reason to it. Mm -hmm. You know, and science is sort of the platonic embodiment of, like, what is, like, possible and good as a result of, like, Enlightenment values. And yet Mm -hmm. the book itself is... Uh, you know sort of uh, a reductio ad absurdum of like if you take that to its logical conclusion it can lead you know it can lead uh, both inevitably but also accidentally to just like the complete annihilation of the species mm-hmm. um and the uh and so art in a sense is like not a good method of like understanding things necessarily you know because it's kind of a mystified version of understanding you know uh like if you want to understand how people interact like you know there's sociology and there's psychology if you want to understand like uh how like materially things happen i mean I'm, i'm a leftist so i'm not big into economics but certainly you know bourgeois economics has like some value in terms of understanding like why materials move around why like what drives people to do the things that they do in terms of their interest but like the the arts is a slightly mystified but also holistic and organic way of generating understanding that is you know not it's like it's it's not justifiable if you're trying to organize society along like specifically rational and like uh you know and, and enlightenment virtues grounds but it's nevertheless it's useful in a way that no other field can ever be because like the, the the sort of mystified elements of it also allow it to plug into things that are not specifically like you know like reliably predictable by other modes of analysis mm. and other modes of engaging with the world and that's sort of the like the tension that this book really plays with and and gets at in a in a in a really profound and fascinating way
1: yeah, I, I mean, I, I think in terms of like uh, different tools for different kinds of analyses. Like, yes, like to understand, you know, certain parts of macro behavior, you absolutely do need to, like, you know, read sociology. You need to sort of, you know, uh, come to terms with the fact that lots of stuff that seems predictable to you and obvious to you you know, it's not actually true, right? There's lots of like counterintuitive realities when you get into sociology. On another level though, I mean, like I remember like when I was young and I was like first getting into films, um, you know, one of the reasons that what I was, why I was really drawn to Woody Allen was, um, uh, even if Woody Allen himself was not necessarily making like, you know, some of the best decisions for himself and, you know, like whatever, um, you know there was so much stuff in his in his movies that you know like i i was in like fucked up like abusive relationships growing up and uh you know i would watch his movies because they would give me like a glimpse into what it was exactly that I was doing, the other person was doing, why things were the way that they were. There's like no way that like, you know, reading sociology or whatever, you know, would have uh, allowed me to understand that, you know, like reading Freud even would not really have allowed me to understand that. But, you know, uh, uh, art being like very much like a very kind of concentrated shortcut for lots of these insights. I mean, I sort of started, you know, uh, uh, getting into this stuff, uh, perhaps like for the wrong reasons, like merely, I guess, like to understand, you know, myself or my life, uh, instead of just like, you know, something broader, but eventually it allows you to, to broaden out you know, uh, as well. So, I mean, it's, it's an understanding that yes, there's like more kind of like a mystery to it and a mystique to it, but there, there's other, there's other kinds of, uh, understandings in the arts that are, you know, j- just as critical. Again, like I very much credit, you know, making, you know, obviously like everybody makes mistakes in their lives, but, uh, I feel like I've made, S- fewer mistakes than I otherwise would have, you know, uh, by virtue of the fact that I surrounded myself with art and consumed it, you know, from an early age and saw, you know, like these like interpersonal relationship relationships, like within books and movies. Right. And, and seeing like, Oh, uh, these people are doing that for that reason. And this is why I should avoid this. And this is why I need to avoid that. Right. Um, so yeah. it was useful well, well, in that well, regard for- as well.
0: Well, I mean, the thing that art has that other, like, other knowledge uh, securing and and generating media don't have is it has kind of a, like, a holistic quality to it, you know? Because it it has to either create its own reality that it operates within or, uh, like, take for granted, uh, like, the reality that we all collectively inhabit. You know, so it 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 can't isolate one thing and say, "Oh, this is actually you know the key to understanding things." Which is honestly where a lot of like the modern like grift industry comes from is like saying that there's one one thing that you can understand that will actually uh, you know unlock the secrets of the universe or whatever to you because there's a like there's a dynamic tension, uh, which I think is actually something that he that he mentions in this book. Mm-hmm. uh i i think Bokan like talked about uh like talks about um like there's a dynamic tension that is possible to to represent in in art mm-hmm. when it comes to dealing with ideas and, and ways of being that you really can't get at in like purely speculative or purely like non-non-fictive modes of being because you know, like we do, we do make our own realities inside of our head to an extent, and mm-hmm. art is the is the only real way of getting at like life as, as it is actually lived in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but, but as I said, there is like there's an element of like mystification or mysticality to that that is not like specifically susceptible to reason. Yeah, you know, like like you can't necessarily explain like why uh a woody allen movie works and why like a noah baumbach movie doesn't work when superficially they have some things in common uh like other other than by recourse to like you know if you get life you get why there's a difference and if you don't then you don't you know, like there, there's, well, I mean, if, if,
1: if, if you start, if you posit certain values, right. As like your starting point, um, I mean, you could objectify, like, I mean, there, there's different, there's different ways to bring reason, like into some of these questions, but, uh, certain, you know, assumptions have to be shared for, for, uh, someone else to, you know, accept your reasons.
0: Well, well, that, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, you can, like i like objectivity is very very important when it comes to like dealing with the arts which is why it's kind of sad that people have so fallen so far down the rabbit hole of like subjectivity but you know objectivity does sort of like you know like like to the you know we're all caught in like the like the kantian like dickhardian impasse Mm. you know like objectivity does require like uh like squaring what it is that we think is actually happening the experience of being alive and existing mm-hmm. you know and you if you if you try to tease apart individual elements too much you can actually like lead yourself down like dead ends you know because you can over focus on one thing to the exclusion of the whole Uh, And the whole is like fundamentally the the medium that like the art draw that art draws from that other uh, other like uh, aesthetic representations of reality cannot.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I I I agree with that. I mean, in the in the future, I I really want to kind of like you know flesh out uh, some of this um, stuff. Like, how would we go about you know in a world with both objectivity and subjectivity? In a you know, this kind of like dynamic tension, like, how would you flesh out, you know, uh, objectivity in the arts, uh, in, in relation to like you know, grounding values, right? Because there, there's definitely some ways to do that 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 can be effective and can really, you know, get people um, uh, on your side, um. And I mean, like, you know, just a little, I guess a little bit more about uh, the, this uh, uh, religion. Like, so some of the other uh, words, right? So we have karas, right? The, the, the your, your team, right? That is there for you to do certain things with. Those certain things that you do are never, in fact, defined. Um, they're not necessarily treated preferentially uh, by this religion, right? And uh, Vonnegut himself doesn't necessarily make any kind of value judgments in this regard, right? He doesn't, you know, put forward, you know, certain crosses as preferable over others. Uh, but he does say there is something called a grand faloon, right? And grand faloon is a false cross, right? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's a, a way of like kind of you know, uh, uh, getting people together by superficial means that don't really mean anything. You know, the classic one that he comes up like in his books and his writings and his lectures, meaning Vonnegut's is, uh, you know, nation states and nationalism, right? Like nationalism as a kind of like, you know, a uh, false cross or, or a grand faloon. Um, and this term actually comes up like pretty effectively, like whenever it's sort of posited, uh, it's it's done like, it's it's just this interesting thing where like, you know, by building this kind of, like, odd, you know, funny kind of vocabulary, uh, he could, like, char- like, what he characterized as some of the, like, sillier characters in the book, uh, he he could, like, you know, have, like, all these, like, you know, put, put some these- in these, like, odd situations or kind of, like, you know, self-referentially and self-evidently, like, you know, uh silly or, like, you know, uh, ways of, like, critiquing these characters. And then, You know he says like this is an example of their like grand faloon and this like odd term that you know you know that exists like it does like so much work right it could it could work as a kind of fulcrum in a chapter like whereas like any other vocabulary word that would be well known or something you could look up in a dictionary um uh, it it wouldn't have this kind of effect right and and i and i think that's kind of like difficult right and underrated you know purely as a writerly you know, artistic technique, right. To like that Vonnegut is able to like a invent words that are, you know, they sound kind of fucked up and silly and yet they kind of stick with you and they have resonance and B, you know, actually employ them specifically for, you know, writerly purposes, chapter to chapter that, you know, uh, just, just do so much simply by existing. Um, My favorite is probably busy, 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 right. Um, When, Something in life happens that's like complicated or unexpected, or you have like you know something like a I don't know like like a butterfly effect for example the the flapping of the wings. Um, uh, a Baconianist in the book would say busy, 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 right to to get at you know uh, the ironies and the complexities of life. Um, mm-hmm. Another one that I love. Uh, now I will destroy the whole whole world. This is what Baudelaire to say before they commit suicide, right? And it'd be like it's so like it, it's so perfectly captures on the one hand like you know subjectivity, but then on an, mm-hmm. a, on another hand it's like well you know if the objective portion of your you know religious compulsion is to write things down no matter the cost you know um, if you kill yourself all that's left for you is to destroy. The whole world as that exists, right? Because you could be the only one, right? That can write, you know, perhaps things in a certain way, right? You are destroying like a piece of, you know, perhaps like a very valuable and valuable part of the world uh, by by undertaking the, this action. Um, yeah.
0: Well, it's yeah, it's interesting because like Baconism is uh, it, it, it is simultaneously kind of a solipsistic religion. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you know, in terms of something like that, where it, it focuses sort of almost radically on like subjectivity, mm-hmm. because you're you, you know you're like the the idea of the religion is that you're sort of like you exist uh, just to sort of enjoy God's good work mm-hmm. in making the universe. You know, so in a sense, like when you die, you know, it is like the death of the whole world because everything is fundamentally you know unified as an act of like self adoration that god has engaged in Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's also like a very non-solipsistic religion in that like the fundamental consideration of it is like the actual like external uh like like the things that you do and the external effects of it Mm -hmm. you know so it's it's a very uh you know i i've sort of been uh like reading about and interested in like dialectics recently it's a very dialectical religion Mm -hmm. in that sense you know and that's kind of what that's both what makes it work as a literary device it's what makes it kind of work as a philosophy unto itself Mm -hmm. you know not quite but it it you know it for something that he just made up for a book it like it's pretty good yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you,
1: I, I could definitely see like a philosophical system emerging from it. I mean, like, look, I mean, philosophers have been talking about like you know the subject-object problem, like you know, since the fucking beginning, and yet th- this treats it in ways that are like just you know, oftentimes just like way more interesting. I mean, like to, to get back to like this idea of like, uh, objectivity. Well, yeah, you know, this, the parts of it, uh, do come off as kind of self, but even in like, you know, this concept of, of the caress, right. Which seems like very kind of self-inflicted and self-absorbed. Well, you know, uh, at some point in the book, like he does say that, um, like and dislike have nothing to do with it. That's literally a line from the book. Like you could have people in your karsses that you absolutely hate or that you don't like that you don't want to be around. But like and dislike is just a personal emotional kind of like you know expulsion that has nothing to do with what is objectively in front of you, whether or not you know a certain persons on your team whether or not, you know, uh, an object of some sort is worthy of your attention, worthy of your time. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it feels, it is a very interesting kind of philosophy, right. Um, yeah. and, and, and then, uh, you know,
0: uh, on top of that, it also, um, it contextualizes everything in the book, you know, in a, in a way that is digestible, you know, I mean, this, a uh, like, like, essentially, it's a book about how the the end of the world is brought about by accident because everybody is like kind of stupid and selfish in the way that they engage with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so, like, Baconism,
1: in and in also that it was that kind it, of inevitable, right? It was like baked into the. It was structure. yeah. It was both
0: inevitable and an accident.
1: Like, yeah, it was baked into the structure of human behavior, and also just physically the structure of Ice Nine. Right, it had to happen in some yes. at some point, right. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah,
0: it's, it's really good book. It's a really good book. And, uh, Uh, you know, also, like, you know, it's easy to get wrapped up in like the, the philosophical end of the book, because I mean, certainly that is kind of the angle on which it is begging to be engaged. But at the same time, you know, just like moment to moment, like there's a lot of interesting artistic things that Vonnegut does that are not like heavy handed. But like, are really add to the richness. The the thing when I was rereading at this time that stuck out to me is the the choice that the director of the laboratory that Felix Honaker works at in Ilium, his you know his brother is also the the one who sells like tombstones and and Mm -hmm. caskets in the town as well, and and and, you know that's like a kind of an interesting you know potentially heavy handed parallel unto itself but the character himself is like kind of aware of it, mm-hmm. you know, kind of aware of the irony of it uh, at the same time. And he's also the only one that has, you know, something like, uh, you know, a more correct perspective on Felix Honecker as a person of mm-hmm. anybody in the book, which is that he sucks, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> like, you know, every like a lot of people in the book characterize him as like, you know, he's kind of saintly, you know, he's just so interested in, The problems of the world and he you know he's kind of this pure uh you know this pure nexus of like knowledge generation but you know he basically causes his wife to die Mm -hmm. by abandoning his car in traffic and forcing her who's not used to driving it Mm -hmm. uh, to go pick it up and getting in an accident and creating a physiologic problem that results in her dying uh, when Mm -hmm. she gives birth to Newt. Um, He pulls his daughter out of school because he is so like dysfunctional as a human being that he has to have some kind of, I mean, it has to be a woman of course, because he, there's, there is sort of an implicit critique of misogyny in the book, even as it itself, you know, can be read as a little bit misogynistic or, or Mm -hmm. at least like, you know dismissive of women in parts um, but you know he like he pulls his daughter out of school just to take care of him because he is completely incapable of taking care of himself mm-hmm. because he is so obsessed with his you know uh you know sort of abstract pursuit of knowledge and he creates something that he has to know you know he not only does he create the atomic bomb which is in and of itself uh you know has the potential to lead to the destruction of uh, at least of civilization if not of humans uh, as a whole you know he creates this thing ice nine that you know he certainly as a scientist has to know is like the most dangerous thing that you could possibly make which is something that if it were to like slip out of your hands and get in the wrong place could cause the entire world to be destroyed almost instantly Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet he has no kind of like he has no kind of moral or philosophical or spiritual grounding in anything that might give him pause in in terms of his investigation Mm -hmm. and 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 you know the, the the only person in the book that really seems to have this perspective that he's a a bad person and kind of an asshole is this man who is uh you know who owns a cemetery or no, owns a, a shop that like sells accoutrement to a cemetery, mm-hmm. and who is himself like sort of the fail son brother of this you know wealthy industrialist. Mm-hmm. So like there's a, a, a and that's just like a really literarily richly conceived um uh you know contrivance that 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 Vonnegut puts in this book, and and that kind of thing is all over the book. Mm. You know, like that's just an example, but like, it, you know, in addition to being like kind of a a philosophically compelling thing, it's also just like well-written and well-wrought on a granular level at every level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And also, you know, we talked about the, the short chapters and how, you know, that is uh, like a clever thing for Vonnegut to give himself in terms of giving him a lot of freedom to introduce like richness on a on the on a granular chapter and chapter level, but it also is like thoroughly justified in terms of the internal motivation of the character that is writing the book. Because like the essence of Bacanonism is these short little poems that are, you know, are trying to encapsulate big complicated concepts in, you know, a small number of, you know, ill wrought but well conceived words and mm-hmm. so he is like recapitulating the structure of the religion that he has adopted in the book that he is himself writing diegetically mm-hmm. in the book
1: Yeah, um, and I actually have some more of these kinds of like you know little you know Bacchananist um, concepts I guess before we move on to some of the other characters and some of the other things in the book uh, here, here, here's a, a one that is a, a very nice history says Bacchanan read it and weep, right? That's like just the end. <laughs> that's just how, it's just the one line. Um, or or uh, what's what's another one
0: toward the end of the book here? You can read something else. I do, There was another one that's
1: really good. How, how about this like little uh, poem? Midget, 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 how he struts and winks, for he knows a man's as big as what he hopes and thinks, right?
0: Yeah, that's that's good and you know it's it's so sad that like the fact that he uses the word midget would get fun to get like canceled nowadays or whatever what, what, like, what, you know, what is
1: the politically correct term i i think
0: dwarf now or or
1: little person are there are the correct terms i I I, mean, I I think dan said it best like dwarf is a fucking like you know it's like a fairy tale invention that doesn't exist right a dwarf is something literally from fucking dungeons and dragons um and a little person is like imagine imagine being born like with like dwarfism or whatever and someone calls you a little person like what the fuck like are you like a little kid they're patting you on the head and calling you a little person it just sucks yeah. Like, honestly, I mean, honestly, I would of the three, I would prefer to be called a midget. Like, if I had yeah. to war. Well, I think midget does refer to like. I think that
0: refers to when they also have like slightly deformed features as well. well uh, like I don't when know, they have the like a like a, a, a head that is slightly too large for their uh-huh. frame and, and things like that. Uh, the other the other one uh, that I thought uh, you know the other Bocanonist thing that I thought was. Uh, enjoyable and funny and kind of poignant uh here let me read this and i remembered the 14th book of Bokonan, which i had read in its entirety the night before the 14th book is entitled what can a thoughtful man hope for mankind on earth given the experience of the past million years it doesn't take long to read the 14th book it consists of one
1: word and a period this is it nothing yeah <laughs> that's memorable um yeah and yeah like like some of these others, like beware of the man who works hard to learn something, learns it, and finds himself no wiser than before. He is full of murderous resentment of people who are ignorant without having come by their ignorance the hard way um and, so, and, so, and some of the doggerel uh, dog roll, uh yeah. we do we do do doodly do doodly do. Doodly do what we must, muddily must, muddily must, muddily must, muddily do, muddily do, muddily do, muddily do until we bust, bodily bust, bodily bust, bodily bust. And to me, that's like, it's just very good dog roll because it's like, okay, we do doodly do. By saying we do doodly do, it's kind of like you're just engaging in like worthless, meaningless, like series of actions, right? You're not just doing, you're doodly doing, doodly doing, like going through life in that way. And then- and then, the, and then the next line: "What we must muddily must muddily must." It's kind of like this compulsion, but also like this word "muddily." There's this confusion in the compulsion, and then he emphasizes this by saying "muddily do," like "muddily do, muddily do." Like you don't really have an understanding, you know, of, of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, yeah, maybe Ned Flanders really had the, you know, the key to yeah.
0: understanding all of existence.
1: Um, In another uh, poem, this is more kind of like I guess like a a dialect poem uh, from like Tobago or something. Where uh, Lionel Boy Johnson is the name that uh, yes. the guy that that invented Baconism. Um, Tiger got to hunt, bird got to fly, man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. Tiger got to sleep, bird got to land. Man got to tell himself he understand, right? Yeah. And like, it just, just like the function of the word got, right? So first of all, I guess Lionel Boyd J- Johnson is from Tobago. So like you have this, like a, um, you know, you have a, uh, you know, uh, got could simply be, you know, a, a, a dialect uh, word, but, you know, if you just take it just like with the two kind of standard definitions, you know, tiger got to hunt. Okay. It can mean that tiger and his allotment. A tiger is allowed to, can, is capable of hunting. Um, Got could also, also mean has to, right? He has to do this thing. So either way that you interpret it, like you get, you know, two different kind, kinds of like shades of meaning, but they all kind of like cohere, you know, into the same, you know, like set of narrows. Um, yeah, it's
0: like, it's, it's like, you don't have any other choice but to do it, but it's also a privilege that you get to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, he's also kind of like casting doubt on the privilege, right? You know, what is yeah. man's privilege to like sit around in existential angst, right? Wondering why, well, why, why?
0: I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk nowadays about like alienation. And I think there are things you could do to, to undo alienation, but like, or to lessen it. But the like, the root of alienation is the fact that we have like sapience you know, mm-hmm. and maybe yeah. specifically complex language, you know, we have the ability to abstractly conceive of ourselves and our circumstances, in, you know, in access of our actual like, material, physical embodiment of what we're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You um. know,
0: so like that, that that's like a fundamental uh, like that that's a fundamental both privilege, but also burden that we are saddled with as a species. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. it's uh it's like it's it's like fundamentally like even if we solved every aspect of scarcity, even if we had like perfect equal distribution, we'd still have to live with that, you yeah. know we'd still have to live with the fact that like our our yearnings and our imagination is not ever gonna perfectly comport with life as it actually is because it's like our imagination is just bigger than life as it is,
1: yeah um one last line uh any man can call time out but no man can say how long the time out will be right that's just so beautiful because it's so applicable it's like so many things in life you could say for example like you know this happens to artists all the time i'm gonna take a, a break from making art and they never fucking return to it right you know you called mm-hmm. your time out you know but you didn't th- you didn't know this was going to be the rest of your life right and it's just so applicable to like so many things in life um mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, and, and you know, getting into uh, you know the the applicability of the whole thing, like the 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 religion itself is, is both is and is not the official state religion of San Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. You know, like it is uh, explicitly banned and explicitly something that will that you will be killed if you like publicly profess belief in although you know we find out in the book he only kills someone about you know one person every two years or so just to sort of keep the the threat alive in people's minds but it's also like the only cohering thing on this otherwise miserable island yeah that you know had that has no reason to exist and has no natural uh Like, it does not at all fit naturally into, like, the world system or whatever, you know. It's basically, it can only ever be a sponge for resources for the rest of the world. And Vonnegut was writing in the context of, like, you know, sort of the Banana Republic concept, you know, of all these, like, Caribbean and Latin American countries that basically uh, had sort of that, like, uh, Leninist Maoist like post-colonial socialism that they were flirting with, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately they ended up getting enveloped into like capitalist hegemony because that's just how the Cold War went, and so that's that's probably what he had in his brain. But in many ways, like the like the thing that this country most reminds me of nowadays is North Korea, mm-hmm. you know, which like north korea was of course a a nation at the time that he was writing but i don't think that like juche and the cult of the kim family specifically it was very uh,
1: very different very different yeah it uh, was
0: in its very early stages and it had not solidified and and cohered in the way that it has now but i mean north korea essentially has the function in the world economy that san lorenzo in this book has in that it's you know, the, uh, I mean, North Korea has, uh, like, topographical and ecological richness to it, you know, you can grow food there, which you can't really grow food in, or anything else in San Lorenzo, apparently. But it doesn't, it doesn't have any sort of like, natural fit in the in the in like the world capitalist system. And so, like, it basically maintains itself by having you know, kind of a tight relationship with China and Kim Jong-un, like a lot of his success has come from like mild neoliberalization of certain functions of the economy in order to have like a tighter trade relationship with China, uh, but also just by, you know, having missiles pointed at South Korea and now having nuclear weapons that it can just sort of periodically say, give us, you know, give us stuff or we're going to fuck shit up. Yeah. You know, and that is essentially what Papa Manzano in this book, like that's his vision of what San I mean, you know, he talks about science. Although although
1: he, although here in this book, San Lorenzo is closely allied to the United States. So this is, you know, like,
0: it, it, it is, but it like yeah, it's not communist, but yeah. like in ter- like functionally, yeah, you know, it, it's basically it's a thing that should not exist, that can only exist, you know. Uh, on the basis of the largesse and surplus of the rest of the world, yeah, and and he, but he's essentially trying to to like get that sort of geopolitical uh, leverage over the rest of the world by having Ice Nine in his possession. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, the reason that he makes Frank Honecker the you know the sort of major domo, the second in command of the country i mean i mean he claims that it's because you know frank can somehow uh bring the magic of science to san lorenzo and supplant the need for something like pecanism Mm -hmm. but that doesn't make any sense because they have no material surplus by which they can develop themselves you Mm -hmm. know they don't have resources that they can sell they don't have agricultural surplus they can sell they don't even have agricultural surplus that they can distribute to their own citizens Mm -hmm. let alone that they can sell to other countries you know, it seems like basically the the plan is bring this guy here. I'm going to have a fragment of this thing, Ice-9, that I could use to destroy the entire world, and probably I'm going to leverage that somehow in order to you know, to to get more stuff for my people and mm-hmm. maybe we won't need Bacchananism at some point in the future as a result of that. And that, I mean, that is essentially the model on which North Korea exists right now, including the you know, the sort of fakey religion that, you know, everybody that is there must on some level recognize is not true, but it's also the only cohering force that they have.
1: Mm-hmm. Although, you know, on some level, I feel like uh, with kind of like the logic of San Lorenzo uh, and the utility they found in Baconism, like, you know, I, I can imagine a situation where, you know, had there not been any uh, death and um, like I can imagine Baconism just kind of like always being useful right and i think that's kind of like sort of the point right there is there is a kind of permanent utility to certain you know like like human constructs like human made you know phenomena right um at, at least that's the sense that that i got uh mm-hmm. we, we should we should probably get into like a little bit more about like franklin honiker and um yes uh uh felix and all and also um just like you know this concept of of cat's cradle so um you know the entirety of chapter five i think does a lot to kind of like build up you know uh, some of the themes in the book so uh chapter five is so like uh, uh john or jonah is is writing to newt uh heinecker who is uh the one of the sons of uh felix so at this point, Felix is already uh, long dead. And um, so uh, John is writing to him and he's trying to get information uh, about, about what, what was happening uh, on this day. And Newt was already alive. So um, uh, this is the letter that uh, Newt sends uh, back. Uh, and it starts, uh, uh, to which Newt replied, I am sorry to be so long about answering your letter. That sounds like a very interesting book you're doing. I was so young when the bomb was dropped that I don't think I'm going to be much help. You should really ask my brother and sister who are both older than I am. My sister is Mrs. Harrison C. Connors, 4918 North Meridian Street, Indianapolis, Indiana. That is my home address too now. I think she will be glad to help you. Nobody knows where my brother Frank is. He disappeared right after father's funeral two years ago and nobody has heard from him since. For all we know, he may be dead now. I was only six years old when they dropped the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. So anything I remember about that day, other people have helped me to remember. I remember I was playing on the living room carpet outside my father's study door in Ilium, New York. The door was open and I could see my father. He was wearing pajamas and a bathrobe. He was smoking a cigar. He was playing with a loop of string. Father was staying home from the laboratory in his pajamas all day that day. He stayed home whenever he wanted to. Father, as you probably know, spent practically his whole professional life working for the research laboratory of the General Forge and Foundry Company in Ilium. When the Manhattan Project came along, the bomb project, Father wouldn't leave Ilium to work on it. He said he wouldn't work on it at all unless they let him work where he wanted to work. A lot of the time that meant at home. The only place he liked to go outside of Ilium was our cottage on Cape Cod. Cape Cod is where he died. He died on a Christmas Eve. You probably know that too. Anyway, I was playing on the carpet outside his study on the day of the bomb. My sister Angela tells me I used to play with little toy trucks for hours, making motor sounds going Burton, Burton, Burton all the time. So I guess I was going Burton, Burton, Burton on the day of the bomb. And father was in his study playing with a loop of string. Uh, that's such a little interesting detail, right? Like you think of like, for example, the uh, W.H. Auden poem about, you know, um, uh, Icarus dropping from the sky and, you know, the horse kind of like nonchalantly sort of like scratching itself. And, you know, when when the bomb was dropped, you know, for many people, they were doing the uh, nonsense equivalent of Burton, 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 right? Mm. Um, it so happens I know where the string he was playing with came from maybe you can use it somewhere in your book father took the string from around the manuscript of a novel that a man in prison had sent him the novel was about the end of the world in the year 2000 and the name of the book was 2000 a.d it told about how mad scientists made a terrific bomb that wiped out the whole world there was a big sex orgy when everybody knew that the world was going to end and then Jesus Christ himself appeared 10 seconds before the bomb went off the name of the author was Marvin Sharp Holderness and he told father in a covering letter that he was in prison for killing his own brother he sent the manuscript to father because he couldn't figure out what the kind of explosive to put in the bomb he thought maybe father could make suggestions I don't mean to tell you that I read the book when I was six. We had it around the house for years. My brother Frank made it his personal property on account of the dirty parts. Frank kept it hidden in what he called his wall safe in his bedroom. Actually, it wasn't a safe but just an old stove flue with a tin lid. Frank and I must have read the orgy part a thousand times when we were kids. We had it for years and then my sister Angela found it she read it and said it was nothing but a piece of dirty rotten filth she burned it up in the string with it she was a mother to frank and me because our real mother died when i was born my father never read the book i'm pretty sure i don't think he ever read a novel or even a short story in his whole life or at least not since he was a little boy he didn't read his mail or magazines or newspapers either I suppose he read a lot of technical journals, but to tell you the truth, I can't remember my father reading anything. This takes like now that I'm reading again, like a little bit of a sinister edge, like not ever having read fiction, right? There's something very sinister about that. All Mm -hmm. I say, all he wanted from that manuscript, as I say, all he wanted from the manuscript was the string. That was the way he was. Nobody could predict what he was going to be interested in next. On the day of the bomb, it was string. Have you ever read the speech he made when he accepted the Nobel Prize? This is the whole speech. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you now because I never stopped dawdling like an eight-year-old on a spring morning on his way to school. Anything can make me stop and look and wonder, and sometimes learn. Anyway, I am a very happy man. Thank you. Um, and I, I remember, like when I first read that, it's like you know, for all the negative qualities that he has, this thing that he says is so like fucking humanizing and true right and so it also has a little bit of a sinister streak because it's like you know but you know we because we know what he put his his you know energy towards anyway father looked at the loop of string for a while and then his fingers started playing with it his fingers made the string figure called a cat's cradle i don't know where father learned how to do that from his father, maybe. His father was a tailor, you know, so there must have been a thread and string around all the time when father was a boy. Making that cat's cradle was the closest I ever saw my father, father come to playing what anybody else would call a game. He had no use at all for tricks and games and rules that other people made up. In a scrapbook my sister Angela used to keep up, there was a clipping from Time Magazine where somebody asked father what games he played for relaxation. And he said, why should I bother with made up games when there are so many real ones going on? Beautiful fucking line. He must have surprised himself when he made a cat's cradle out of the string. And maybe it reminded him of his own childhood. He all of a sudden came out of his study and did something he'd never done before. He tried to play with me. Not only had he never played with me before, he had hardly ever even spoken to me. But he went down on his knees on the carpet next to me and he showed me his teeth and he waved that tangle of string in my face. See, 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 he asked, cat's cradle. See the cat's cradle? See where the nice pussycat sleeps? Now, now. His pores looked as big as craters on the moon. His ears and nostrils were stuffed with hair. Cigar smoke made him smell like the mouth of hell. So close up, my father was the ugliest thing I had ever seen. I dream about it all the time. And then he sang, Rockabye Catsy in the treetop. He sang, When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. If the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Down will come cradle, Catsy and all. I burst into tears. I jumped up and I ran out of the house as fast as I could go. I have to sign off here. It's after two in the morning, my roommate just woke up and complained about the noise from the typewriter. Um, So we get, you know, we get all that characterization there. We get a bunch of people characterized in one chapter and we get, you know, uh, lots of negative qualities, obviously uh, about Felix, but also, you know, some like little positive, like humanizing elements that, you know, uh, tons of people I feel like could, could, could connect to. And we also get, you know, the introduction of like uh the cat's cradle game and you know for anybody that that, that's not aware you know it's it's a string game where there's like a starting position and each player uh could move the string in certain ways where you could make new shapes with it but the trick is like the, the the more shapes that you make The closer you could get to making some kind of mistake where the game will end, right? And the game ends when somebody makes some kind of shape where no other shape can be made from it. Um, And, you know, like I I just took this as a kind of like metaphor for, I mean, for like a a bunch of different things, right? One of them is like, you know, uh, if you think of something like the atomic bomb, for example, you know, eventually when you think of like how human brains are set up and how societies are set up, like, you will eventually find something like the atomic bomb as one of the endpoints not even necessarily that it would lead to the end of the world but like you know like it, it you would eventually get there right you would you would run out of you know things to do you would run out of shapes to make and all the previous decisions eventually would lead to this decision right like in some ways like something like the atomic bomb is inevitable right just like with the incentives of like just being a human being um uh, uh, you know, like, like, like choices just kind of like shrink, shrink as they multiply. And, you know, Felix obviously is a like completely indifferent to this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really good metaphor, but also the way that it, um the book undermines it as well, because uh, later in the book, Newt is very uh, skeptical of, of the cat's cradle because he's like, you know, you see the cat, you mm-hmm. see the cradle, like it ultimately yeah. does not even Look like the thing that it you know is ostensibly supposed to be referencing, and that mm-hmm. uh, re- you know really refers nicely back to the you know the the, the sort of I don't know the act of faith or, or whatever that goes into something or like or, or the 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 act of imagination that that goes into something like that. That if you don't if you don't share it, you know a lot of the uh, the things that hold it up break down. And that breakdown is like also fundamentally what goes into something like you know world-ending technologies uh, being developed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um,
0: yeah. It's and then and then also the uh, uh, in the in the book, like Newt makes a, a a painting out of like scratching a piece of black velvet or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh so you know so that it shows white underneath and he makes like uh you know a sort of evocative uh like impressionist like version of a cat's cradle that uh i think it's julian castle the older one like takes and throws into a waterfall and he says that it's going to end up you know in like a fishing net that one of the locals has set up at the at the far end of the of the river that the waterfall flows into Mm -hmm. and it's just going to be sitting drying you know along with other pieces of trash and detritus that end up in the net you know on a beach somewhere so there's kind of a nice um you know evocation of sort of like the existential emptiness of this like hole process uh as 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 well which also goes along with like newts like you know despite the fact that he made the painting like his fundamental like skepticism and like lack of buy-in that he has to the whole thing Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um it's a a good character you know uh i mean all the characters are good but there is there there is something he's kind of uh you know in the fact that he's like a a little person or dwarf or midget or whatever term you want to use i guess he would technically be a dwarf because they say that his proportions are fine he's just short Mm -hmm. um you know he is like remarkably well adjusted to his situation and to the extent that he has like he's
1: the most normal uh, one of of the three
0: yeah like to the extent that he is maladjusted it's more so because his father was Felix Henniker, and not because he's like a, a like a dwarf. Mm. Um, I mean, he is all you know. He he does say later in the book that he used to have sexual dreams of women forty feet tall, like
1: yeah. crushing
0: him, which. It's fu- you know it's funny to say because that actually is like a fetish on the internet now is like the idea of like being crushed by like giant people or something yeah. like that or that or, or like
1: I I saw one post about like like some fucking guy like he he saw some kind of tall woman he was like I want I want to live in the bottom of her fucking sock <laughs> he like yeah. just like walked, like and I want her to fucking walk with me in the yeah. sock uh, you
0: know and and that's I don't know if that's to say that like artists are tuned to reality in a way that regular people aren't that they can sort of anticipate something that maybe is going to like come after them or if it's just yeah. that the act of creatively engaging in reality means that you're going to sort of accidentally stumble upon things that like, you, like it's not that you were tuned into something it's just that like you know people are going to eventually like iterate their behavior into something like you know something that you just sort of creatively were playing with. Mm-hmm. But regardless, I mean, you know, that's, you know, that's a funny thing or whatever. But, you know, Newt has kind of a, a cynicism to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he is the only one that doesn't really have uh, as strong of a memory of his father because he, he died when he was younger. And he and his mother wasn't. He doesn't remember his mother at all either. So he doesn't necessarily have like a warm um, like like his, you know, his warm presence is his sister who has sort of. Uh, in the absence of having the the father to to mother and pamper and cater to, like turn him into like a perpetual child mm-hmm. that she sort of uh, infantilizes, that he both acquiesces to it, but also seems to have a certain, if not resentment of, then at least like he he actively tries you know tries to 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 move outside of the 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 cat's cradle of smothering that she sort of has him. It's constant, uh, but also you know he's one of the survivors as well. You know, and mm-hmm. he seems uh, to be the one that is like the best adjusted to like the post-apocalyptic world because he didn't fit all that well into the world as a like him and Frank both. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're they're very well situated in a post-apocalyptic world because they did not fit all that well into the world as it was constituted before the Ice Nine destroyed everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. They're all kind of interesting characters, and um, like, like soon after like this this letter from Newt, uh, I I said I was going to read this whole thing, pages thirteen to seventeen. I'm getting increasingly tired, so maybe I won't. But basically, like, you get a bunch of characterization in chapter six, like right after this, you know, one after the other. Like Angela gets characterized, uh, Newt himself gets characterized some more a uh, uh, Frank who's like this kind of like, you know, uh, I'm not sure if I call him a bully, but he's like, you know he's like p- you know putting bugs together into like you know a-, a bottle. He's like trying to like make them fight by shaking it up. Uh, you have a uh, Felix. I'm not sure if like, you know this is like Felix kind of like you know entering like the early stages of dementia or something. but uh, I remember actually you reading Cat's cradle for the first time uh, when you visited, Uh, Me for the first time when we first met in 2014, because we first met on the internet. Um, And I remember you reading Cat's Cradle. And I remember you laughing, like very hysterically from the other room, because you're reading the part where uh, uh, Felix is like, like, he's like getting obsessed with these like fucking turtles. and he he stops working he stops working on the um he stops working on the atomic bomb and the only way that they could like get him to start working again is like they remove the turtles from the office uh and then he turns to his family and he asks when turtles go back into their shells do their spines buckle or contract that's the question that he asks yeah and then and then
0: um uh, and then, what's the daughter's name? A- Angelica, Ange- Angela? An- Angela, yeah, yeah, Angela. She she gets him to start working on the bomb again by just taking the turtles away. Yeah,
1: and he completely <laughs> he like completely forgets about the turtles, right? You know, yeah. um, and, and that's yeah. the thing. Like, you know, like on some level, like he's presented as like this, you know, the sort of like harmless figure, and you know, in the in the most kind of like generic baseline way of like just being a family man. He's a, li- he's a little bit harmless, but I mean, he's also like, you know, he's bad to his wife, obviously, you know, he seems to be neglecting his kids, um, but he's like this kind of like happy-go-lucky figure, and yet, you know, like I- I'm just wondering, like, w- 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 what do you think is like the function there? Like this like happy-go-lucky figure that happens to be working on like the fucking atomic bomb, like, like did, did that mean anything to you or what?
0: Well, you know, I I, I think you have to bring like the politics into this a little bit because like vonnegut himself i mean he was some kind of socialist or anarchist or something like that you know he was on like he was some kind of left tendency you know he was skeptical of governments and nation states and things like that he sort of thought you could get to a point where people could basically govern themselves you know interpersonally and socially i think there's an interview where he says something like uh, you know, when we, when I was a prisoner of war in World War II, you know, we were all really tightly bound, uh, Bound, and if somebody was a thief, we could deal with that person that was a thief without needing to, like, brutalize or imprison them, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we were all in prison, so I guess, so, yeah. so, so, I, like, th- there is something, um like, too, like, like, teleologically about any kind of left tendency that suggests that like the the natural end state of human beings is something like an engagement with reality that is like play like mm-hmm. you know that is like you have eliminated uh you know the need to worry too much about like securing the material means of subsistence and so you can sort of delve into reality it, you know in a more playful enjoyable kind of way but you know. Uh, like Felix is kind of the, um, you know, he is sort of like like what that would look like if it is not bounded by any kind of uh, like socially agreed upon uh, morality that can like bound behavior mm-hmm. in a you know in a way that is like pro social, you know, like he it, 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 like he is kind of a saint like figure in like the classical sense of like sainthood as i i mean i guess it technically means like you did a miracle but you know most of the people that are lauded as like saints in catholicism or eastern orthodox or whatever are people that sort of like you know became in some way unmoored from like you know the the petty gritty reality of uh uh, uh, of political life and you know sort of engaged with god on a more like abstract or fundamental level and tried to Bring something of that experience to other people. Yeah, you know, and, and Felix, it is kind of you know he has some of that quality, but he has no. He, has, I mean, I think at one point, you know, like one of the 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 dumb characters that works at the Ilium Forge and Foundry, she said that she said to him something like, uh, you know, like he asked her like, what is something that you are sure that you know, and she says, oh, I know that God is love, and he says, what is God? What is love? Mm-hmm. And you know, he like he is someone that is unmoored from anything that might make him consider like what are the implications of what I'm doing for anybody else that is not myself. You know, mm-hmm. he is like like he is both, you know, the like teleologically desirable end state of something like an, you know, an anarchist or, or or socialist project, but without any of the uh like like any of the lessons that you might learn in the, in the uh, process of getting there that might make you not quite as solipsistic as he is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like viewing it in terms of like, you know, a saint uh, in the literal sense of like, you know, uh, rendering some sort of miracle, uh, it, it, it does make sense, you know, within some of the tropes of this book. Like, I mean, like um, uh, all the time, like there's this kind of idea, like this connection between like science and magic, right? Uh, how can we, um, you know, uh, and, you know, th- this counter idea that, you know, well, science is better than, than magic because it's magic. That's real. Right. Um, and, you know, like, to the extent that like delivering the atomic bomb is a kind of miraculous act, like in, in a twisted sense, like you could sort of say that. Right. Um, and, uh, I-, I think like, you know, with all these like characterizations that kind of like come at you, you know, pretty fast uh we we get like a a kind of like a capstone to a lot of these characterizations and where everything is kind of going like on chapter 11 it's it's a it's a short chapter but a very funny one um it's just titled protein um Mm. so this is like when uh when john is going around trying to get uh, more stories about um uh the, the kids about about felix and and he comes upon some people at a bar and this is what said. He was supposed to be our commencement speaker. Said Sandra, "Who was I asked? Doctor Hoineker, the old man. What did he say? He didn't show up. So you didn't get a commencement address. Oh, we got one. Doctor Breed, the one you're going to see tomorrow. He showed up, all out of breath, and he gave some kind of talk. What did he say? He said he ho- he said he hoped a lot of us would have." have careers in science, she said. She didn't see anything funny in that. She was remembering a lesson that had impressed her. She was repeating it gropingly, dutifully. He said, the trouble with the world was, she had to stop and think. The trouble with the world was, she continued hesitatingly, that people were still superstitious instead of scientific. He said, if everybody would study science more, There wouldn't be all the trouble there was. He said science was going to discover the basic secret of life someday, the bartender put in. He scratched his head and frowned. Didn't I read in the paper the other day where they would finally found out what it was? I missed that, I murmured. I saw that, said Sandra, about two days ago. That's right, said the bartender. What is the secret of life, I asked. I forget, said Sandra. Protein, the bartender declared. They found out something about protein. Yeah, said Sandra. That's it. And I mean, there's like a bunch of stuff going on here. Like, first of all, um, notice how like of the three characters here, uh, John is the one that is kind of like very demure, right? I miss that, I murmured, right? He doesn't want to admit that he missed what the secret of life was that this you know this newsworthy worthy thing that supposedly both of them you know were privy to and you know not very educated and he being like you know educated and has like all these perhaps ideas about himself he missed that so he kind of like in an embarrassed fashion he says i missed that i murmured and yet you know for the other two characters when they like inform him what the secret of life is like they do it so casually. they don't care. There's no meaning to it. There's no response to it. It reminds me a lot of of, of how like, you know, you have this like like funny little inversion in um an office space, right? Where like, you know, you know, like they're, they're sort of like you know, bitching about like not being part of the American dream about having to work these long hours doing bullshit. And then somebody asks uh, the main character, what would you do with a million dollars? And he says, absolutely nothing. I would sit on my ass and I would do nothing. And then you realize, like, yeah, that's kind of like, this is how so many people view leisure this is how so many people view meeting this is what they want for themselves they just want to be vegetables and you know and it, it you know it, in a sense like it's like this like anticlimactic secret that gets revealed and in the meantime you characterize so much of like the american ethos you characterize a character here right you know john jonah right who's obviously like important for the rest of the text And how like everything just kind of, you know, parallaxes around him. This is, you know, very short chapter, but, you know, it's funny. And there's like so much going on underneath the surface. If you like think about it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's also just a good summation of like the modern condition, you know, when there is so much um, specialization of everything, you know, and there's just so much knowledge and interpretation being generated uh, like day by day that. It's like even if someone found the secret of life, that like the likelihood is, I mean, obviously, there, yeah, that's a bullshit concept. There's no, no secret of life, but like, even if like somehow there was and somebody found it, it would likely, you know, entail like knowledge and expertise that the vast majority of people would not really be able to relate to or understand. It would just be another, it would be just another thing that was in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be anything that would change their life. It would just be an, another thing that they really couldn't engage with in any meaningful way, both, you know, because of the, you know, the general limits of the average person, but also the, the, the relative lack of time that people have to really dig and engage with this kind of shit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, from, from, from this point, um, uh the book just kind of like moves a lot faster eventually we we so we get to like the the reason why he gets to san lorenzo is he has like an unrelated writing assignment there um and he just like discovers like holy shit like actually like frank Heineker is is there uh and uh when he sees and you mentioned this like earlier about like possible like misogynistic uh undertones uh maybe you could elaborate uh, here like he 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 finds a uh, mona right and and uh, he sees her or like or like a picture of her and he completely uh fall falls in love and to the extent that uh i mean there's like a misogynistic quality uh element to the protagonist i mean you know he he calls it you know part of his crass but like you know perhaps this is a a grand falloon right where he's just Mm -hmm. kind of like you know he becomes so fixated on on her but for no apparent reason other than what like you know like you said earlier like what he's horny like you know he he lusts over her like there's nothing there's there's nothing except like a picture right and he just decides that he has to have her right so Mm -hmm. uh, he gets embroiled now in the um the San Lorenzo uh, uh, politics uh, from this point forward. And I, I, you know, I think these are all kind of like intelligent artistic choices in the part of Vonnegut. We have, like I said earlier, you know, the first third, we build this kind of base where like all the characters get fully fleshed out and now they're stuck into like, you know, the political side of things, the more philosophical side of things and, um, you know, like developments and, and plot elements just really kind of like, go at you uh very quickly from 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 this point forward um mm-hmm. until until we get uh this um uh, thing with like you know ice nine um uh, like so, like what do, what do you make of like you know mona like uh, mona manzano like what like what is her function like is she just there to just kind of like show you know the silliness of, of john or or like what like like what do, what is she doing there and why is she like maybe like written in the way that she's um written as a kind of you know, she's kind of like a she has like some mystique i guess um she she's not you know she's not maybe i i'm missing something she's not totally uh interesting to me uh as a character except uh as a kind of like foil to to john right
0: well you know it's hard uh I would say she's mostly an underdeveloped character, although that's just kind of a function of where she is introduced in the book Mm -hmm. as as an actual physical presence because most of the the characterization stuff happens before he actually goes to San Lorenzo. Mm -hmm. Uh, And once he actually gets there, it's sort of uh, a rapid-fire unfolding of plot stuff and philosophy Mm -hmm. and politics and all that. Um, uh, I mean, you could say... I mean, in some ways, she's the most actualized character in the book, you know, because yeah, she really she is. is. Yeah, that's she, the irony. She lives yeah. and believes in the philosophy of Bacchananism in a way that basically nobody else can. And the fact that she is herself, like, mixed race. She's the the daughter of presumably a San Lorenzo native and this, like, Finnish architect uh, that, that came to the island to design the, was it the hospital or the castle? I can't remember the, the hospital,
1: right? Um the, the 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 design. Um I don't I don't really remember.
0: Well, and I think I think she's the daughter of like a Finnish architect that designed the hospital. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think so. Um so I mean there's like some subtle commentary about like the need to merge like the relentless rationalism of the West with the sort of, you know, more, more organic and uh, I guess like holistically um, uh, like fulfilling uh, folk ways of, you know, people in the developing world or people in more like traditional societies. Um, I mean, she's also just, uh, and, and and she has both, you know, I mean, when l- later in the book, uh, he, when, when they're in the bunker after the ice nine has hit the ocean and, and frozen everything, he tries to have sex with her and it's, it's not very good. He doesn't like mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And she doesn't like it. And, you know, her, he, like her response to why it wasn't good, she's like, well, you know that that's like how you make babies, right? Does this mm-hmm. really seem like a good time to make babies? Mm-hmm. You know, her, uh, like her re, like her reasoning is like has both, uh, like uh like a spiritual psychological edge but also just sort of like a, like a biological uh rationale to it as well so she's kind of uh you know she's the estuary of, of different uh, of different tendencies embodied in a single character and in some ways that's kind of her weakness as a character you know because her inner life is not exactly developed but that's also like justified aesthetically in the book because it's You know, it's implied that she has been sort of an object of adoration and affection across the, you Mm -hmm. know, like since she was a very little girl, you know, maybe because she did have like a Western father. So she was kind of, you know, an an, an object of um, aspiration for many of the islanders who don't really see much of a future for themselves on the island itself. Um, And, you know, also just it's it's kind of a weird fact that the that until maybe the last 10 years it was pretty acceptable for older people to lust openly after like pretty young women mm-hmm. you know it's it's only now that you know with a with sort of a, a mature development of feminism and other things that we kind of realized that that's maybe not not so cool not so kosher at least in in a lot of circumstances where it where it rears its head mm-hmm. um but you know, she wouldn't have had much of a chance to develop herself personally because she has never been anything but you know, either you know, either uh, a figurehead for the like these the secular civic side of the society and the religious side, simultaneously mm-hmm. being someone who like you know really embodies the religion and she'll do the boko the foot massaging uh, mm-hmm. ritual with basically anybody that she encounters and she has a gen- generalized love uh, of everybody or, or or so she claims mm-hmm. you know she's sort of like the you know the to, to get all lacanian or whatever like the obscure object of desire in, in, in that she has really no cynicism the main mm-hmm. character is very very cynical and quasi nihilistic for much of the book um even though she has the best reason to be cynical of anybody in the book, because she has been totally denied her agency for her entire life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a good point. She's in one hand, like, yes, uh, the most like self-actualized character, but also like, you know, like it's, uh, you know, it's some sort of know version as well in the sense that, um, you know, perhaps like a little bit less, human you know the rest perhaps that's you know that's also because of the self-actualization right like in some ways um you know like uh you, you could make the argument that uh, uh the more self-actualized a human being is the more fully human they are but you know to to others right especially to like other characters in this book that have many more flaws um you know people that are self-actualized will appear. You know, uh, less recognizably human for that same reason, right? Uh, out of you know the deficiencies um, uh, in others, right? Um, Di- dialectics, man, it's a useful fucking concept. Um, so like, what what else? Uh, uh, oh oh, oh like I, I I you know uh, I uh, I forget what other book he like. So vonnegut like always like you know he always beats on this word. A uh, Hoosier, right? Like he's always beating on Hoosier, like land Hoosiers and this concept of the Hoosier, right? Resident of Indiana. Like that, yeah. you know, I guess like proud uh people from Indiana use, you know, in reference to themselves. Like this is always coming up. Um, and like in in, in this book, like uh there's uh, the mittens, right? The the mittens are uh, uh characters that are they're 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 married and they seem to be like uh uh, in love and in, in, in some in like you know different ways, um, and uh, uh, the the female Minton I forget her first name missus let's just call her uh, Mrs. Minton. Um, like she, you know she 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 says that she's a Hoosier and she's trying to get John on board. Like hey like you know you have to be like uh, proud of this. You have to think of me you know as, as as your mother. And by like by making the Minton so kind of like silly and like uh in other ways like this this like emphasis on being hoosiers like this is a vonnegut's way of like reintroducing this idea of the false caress, right and like Interestingly enough, like that that word "hoosier," H O O S I E R. This is literally uh, something like like that could have come from a vonnegut book, right? This is literally mm-hmm. like a could like it could be like a, a beacon in this term, right? It just sounds so silly. It sounds so like dumb. Uh, yeah. And and the is fact it, that there's it, like
0: what
1: what is the etymology of that term? Is it French? Um, I, I don't, I don't remember. I actually like looked it up uh, for this conversation that I forgot, but um, like it's, it's just like uh, but like it, it's, 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 it's odd. Like no, no, matter what the etymology is for, you know, people that speak English in America to be using this like word, like like Mike Pence, for example, says that he's a proud Hoosier, right? It's just yeah. so fucking like. Well, you know, silly. the reason that it works so well as like you know the
0: embodiment of a grand saloon in the book is that. Is it the only, like, word for a resident of a state that does not have the name of the state in it? Is there another one? I don't know, but
1: it it could be. could be.
0: Yeah. Like, you know, the idea that... And especially Indiana. I mean
1: yeah like yeah, talk like, like, nothing, uh, yeah the, the talk accompli- about your nothing state the the the, accompli- the, inco- the accomplishments that she lifts lifts off from indiana it's like some random person that did like one yeah. like, i guess notable thing and some other person but it's like you know
0: like, like talk about a state that like does not have a culture
1: yeah you know I, that is like, i, I can't associate anything with indiana
0: you know like you know i mean i guess it's midwestern so it has a generically midwestern culture but like minnesotans and wisconsins have like different qualities you know and and illinoisians have different qualities to those two states you know i can't specifically like other than now it's like you know a pretty right wing state and it's full of like drug abuse i really can't think of anything specific to indiana that like that you know you know that separates it from other states that would give it some kind of a you know some kind of an identity that is worth like having a designated term for and like obsessing over in, in somebody's personal life it's it's really and and you know you you just know that like vonnegut himself like he just got annoyed that somebody said yeah. the word hooser in front of yeah, him. exactly that's that's definitely and, and like he, the sense that i got yeah like and, and so he just like incorporated in you know
1: into <laughs> it's this like book, multiple you know? books yeah
0: and it feels it's very organic in the way yeah. that it's interwoven into the book and it works perfectly but yeah. it's also just some you know weird little thing that bugged him you know and that's that's like the the ineffable uh, aspect of art like just mm-hmm. the you know taking something that is so small and specific to your subjective experience of life and finding something about it that touches on something a little more universal
1: yeah, you know, speaking of Indiana, we saw like is there anything notable? Honestly, the only thing that um uh comes into my head uh is uh I'm not sure if you if you remember the show from Nickelodeon uh in the 90s, uh Eerie Indiana. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I don't I actually don't remember any episodes, but like um, you know, uh I, I get a sense like perhaps maybe it might have been like a, a better than average show. Yeah. right um the, the the only the only thing i really associate with indiana culturally is that it was
0: in like the early part of the 20th century it was a state where the clan the ku klux klan was very powerful but the politics were predominantly republican instead mm-hmm. of democrat
1: yeah you know and, that's uh,
0: that's it you know yeah. that's not a not a not a very proud legacy
1: yeah so so last 30 years we have a, a nickelodeon show we have um you know uh uh Vonnegut s- s- still using this a vice president who calls himself a fucking Hoosier and is like proud to do it and is like tweeting about it and shit and uh we also have uh Obama winning Indiana the first time around uh in 2008 um yeah. th- those are the, the main things but perhaps we're being unfair. Right, but yeah. I, I get I get the feeling that perhaps uh, Vonnegut must have done some research. <laughs> he was like, "Fuck Indiana, fuck these people!" Yeah. Like, the the you're using the, this 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 dumbass fucking term. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, like I mean, I mean, like, 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 and that that's like you know an actual you know piece of like everyday reality that you know like you said like he did work it seamlessly into the book he did use it to not only characterize you know the mint the mintons as you know individuals in the book but also you know like the, no, the, it wasn't the, the mintons. It was the other
0: couple that was the hoosier couple
1: really it was the, Min- the, the mintons
0: are the ambassadors
1: yeah aren't they the ones that are like you know i'm your mom now no 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 it was the other couple the one
0: um where the husband is actually from Evanston, which is right next to where I am, uh, and he has the bicycle factory that he wants to open on San Lorenzo.
1: Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: Um, but, I mean, regardless, you know, it's yeah. still actually the Minton's are like the the other most self actualized like characters in the book, and it's implied that it's because they have found their purpose in life in each other and yeah, yeah. to the exclusion of the rest of the world. Yeah,
1: and that there was a phrase for that too. What is the Baconinist uh Do
0: do do dupras dupras,
1: yeah, dupros is yeah. like it's a cross of two people only, right? And in this yeah. case they are they are married. They actually uh I'm not sure if do do they die at the end or do we just see them like going down into the ocean? I think they might that, have died. well it's
0: I mean we, they are on when the plane crashes into the cliff and the the platform starts like breaking apart, um, he saves the he saves the Minton or no the the I forget what their last name is. He saves the the, the Hoosiers, mm-hmm. um, but they they are trying to the the Mint the Minton's are trying to be you know dignified ambassadors and not you know show panic you know in this moment of crisis, but they end up. Um, like stuck on like by the time that it's like cracked and gone too far apart from where they could possibly be saved they fall into the ocean and then even if they didn't die from that the the ice nine falls in shortly after and they of course would have died from that
1: Hmm. yeah um well it's
0: are we i mean there's a lot more in your notes to talk about but we are getting on the late side i see you yeah know, I, I we want yeah to-
1: i'm i'm usually uh like actually long asleep by now it's already like it's going to be midnight soon um yeah let, let's just like wrap this up here uh so like just the it's, concept. it's funny
0: because it's like a book you
1: could talk like yeah, i feel I mean, like we, we, could, we, talk we, about we could, could do this like, like, like yeah and there's tons of like, stuff to read hours. like there's there's, ton, there's tons of extra excerpts you could keep going through um I, I stopped like you know i stopped taking notes at some point because it's like you know we we, we won't just have time for thing. everything yeah. um well but like let's talk about like the concept of like a uh, ice ice nine right like you know why ice nine why not you know so like he's talking about you know the atomic bomb here obviously right this is how the book begins but he doesn't stick with the atomic bomb this uh, eventually gets into you know ice nine as a kind of like um you know replacement for it and i guess my question to you is is uh why ice nine why not something else um to me you know like my my, uh, basic answer uh I mean there's like more to say but um you know at at some point like I could imagine like you know this being written the 60s uh everybody's like so fearful of the atomic bomb 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 you know fallout shelter this that this that uh I could imagine you know just kind of like it being sort of overdone culturally it being overdone in terms of like you know people's like politicized fears um, it being overdone in terms of like uh, the existential threats that get kind of like, you know, banded about. And this was like what this was like published, like what, like a, a year um, or so, like after the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so like the, it was contemporary. Uh, when was the Cuban Missile Crisis? That was in 62? Yeah, 62.
0: Yeah. So this was published in 63. So he was probably writing it at the same time that was happening.
1: Yeah. And the, the fact you know, I can imagine like if this is the thing that's in everybody's mind, well, you know, um, he probably feels compelled to discuss like the concept of like, you know, uh, I guess a kind of mutually assured dis- destruction without doing the most obvious route of like you know just just talking about the atomic bomb so you know interestingly enough like he starts with the atomic bomb but this is not the thing that destroys the world right Mm -hmm. uh ice nine ice nine is the thing that has to destroy the world but you know um uh you know in the way that um the atomic bomb has mutually assured destruction uh and, and you know it, it has you know this like mad quality because just like just human, like if you have an atomic bomb and it could potentially get into somebody else's hands you will you will get into a state of like you know mutually assured destruction simply on account of how the human brain is wired how human societies are structured. Like this is just like, you know, the talking about the cat's cradle from earlier. This is just like a set of decisions, you know, most of them out of the hands of people in general, uh, that will eventually lead to this point. And ICE nine, you know, functions in the same way. You know, it's not so much that, you know, like, you know, MAD with the atomic bomb is baked into like human fabric in terms of like how we structure society. With ICE nine, it's actually baked into the physical structure. You know of the ice, right? It's baked into what happens to things. You know, upon pure physical contact, but it's still the same concept, right? Except, you know, the logic gets transferred from, you know, uh, I guess some level of, of human choice and human culpability to, you know, uh, just just like ice nine, like structurally baked into this, you know, process. As soon as it touches water, this is what happens to the rest of the world.
0: Um I mean in terms of why it's ice 9 I, I I think you're right I mean just on a functional level you know you got to find something that's not as overdone as the atomic bomb was even by 1963 less than 20 years after it was you know introduced to the world um I think it's also I, I mean I, I have kind of in reading it this time and having thought a lot about you know the I guess the last 400 years of intellectual and political developments and the enlightenment and all that i I, I have kind of gotten attached on this particular reading to the idea that there is something about this book that is if not like opposed to at least like loyally critical of the enlightenment as a you know as a as a Mm -hmm. process um so it's it i think it's something about taking something as like fundamental and pure as water Mm -hmm. you know i mean as lauren Isley says in like the first essay of his uh immense journey you know if there's a secret to 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 living in life on this world it has something to do with water Mm -hmm. you know um it's the idea that you know uh like like the application of pure reason even to something as like simple and innocent as water Mm -hmm. can pervert it and turn it into something that has the potential to undo everything, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it has something, it's about, you know, like, like, you know, even, even the most innocuous of things can be turned into something that is at least self-destructive, if not species destructive, you know, if you apply reason to it enough in the absence of, um, You know in the absence of other like moral or social considerations that might go into that kind of investigation
1: yeah i mean yeah you know those those are good points uh another thing that i that i thought about uh and perhaps we could like sort of like uh, end it here is um like so like i mean uh you know in some ways uh We're not necessarily in a better state in terms of like, you know, potential nuclear Armageddon compared to like, you know, the time of the Soviet Union. We have made the transition from a, uh, you know, a a, a bipolar world, meaning like, you know, two poles of power, Soviet Union, United States. Now we have a multipolar world more countries have uh, nuclear weapons some countries have them like israel like in secret Um, you know proliferation is kind of kind of all over the place but uh, we don't have the same kind of rhetoric and the same kind of fears about nuclear annihilation that you know we're around uh, during the ussr right and i like i remember like when i was a kid and i was like first reading you know, like Black Panther Party literature. And I think it was either um, George Jackson. I mean, he wasn't like a Black Panther, but I mean, I guess like Black Panther adjacent. It was either George uh, Jackson or Huey P. Newton. Uh, One of them said something like, you know what? We hear like all this bullshit about the atomic bomb and that, you know, uh, it might get used against us or we might have to use it against someone else uh you know after uh, you know this was like in the in the 60s um but in reality uh that's not possible since you know mutually assured destruction will not ever allow someone to make the first move and i remember like you know thinking about that at the time and they were framing it as like you know a way to like you know it was like a a it was on the one hand like a a kind of actual sort of threat in the distance but also a very convenient way to control people control the population you know uh rule in a sense by fear um because again like it's just weird to me how like we don't have the kind of saber rattling and fear-mongering about nuclear annihilation now despite the fact that like you know not in always but in some ways you know, the risk is is uh, as high, if not higher than ever, right? And the question is why? Like, what, what accounts for this transition, you know? Um, you know, and, and is, for example, like, you know, it's climate change today, like the new atomic bomb, you know, in, you know, like two, three centuries ago, did they have another kind of like, you know uh item that they were uh fixated upon as like potentially the end of the world is this simply just like what human beings do like do do we simply like worry about um you know potential you know uh pitfalls and and ends to and ends to the world like that we simply like cycle through the never actually transpire like is this simply what people do is there something more sinister going on in terms of like you know keeping people in line and keeping sort of you know you know power where it is like 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 how do you interpret all that
0: um well i i mean there has always been like fixation on the end of the world you know i mean it used to be religious in nature you know the idea of god himself coming down and ending things or or, or something along those lines. So, I mean, it could just be, you know, a displacement of that general tendency. I mean, you know, so, something that is kind of fleshed out in in Freudian psychology that I think contemporary psychology has not quite uh, gotten a handle on is like the idea of the death drive. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of like the your, your existence and the existence of the of the species and of the planet, like. Like, like there being something attractive about those two things being coterminous, mm-hmm. you know? But, uh, I mean, in terms of the atomic bomb specifically, I think it's that there's, there are different countries that have atomic bombs, but there's not necessarily a civilizational clash of ideologies at the heart of any of the conflicts between the parties that have nuclear bombs. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are like petty regional interests uh like 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 pakistan and india or india and china or china or you know or, or or broad economic conflicts and entanglements like china and the united states but there's not anything like two societies proposing radically different modes of being in the world like the united states and i mean The USSR really never was that, but at least theoretically, that's what the philosophy that they were ostensibly founded on was promising. Mm -hmm. You know, so there, so there wasn't there. there, There's nothing at stake in modern conflicts like that that you could sort of conceivably see like uh, that that uh, total destruction of everything, you know, being something that somebody might pick. However, uh, you know, the, the funny thing is. Like as the fear of the atomic bombs goes down, I actually am kind of afraid that someone will sneak past the goalie in one of these countries that is not versed in the like geopolitical strategic considerations that go into the atomic bomb and actually use it. I mean, like there was a report, I don't, you know, with Trump, you could never like know what was real and what was like a media hysterical invention, but supposedly he thought he like he talked about like launching a nuclear bomb at a hurricane you know to try and disperse right. it like there, there, there was a story going around about how like when one of the you know some hurricane was happening like Trump had discussed with his advisors or his generals or whatever the idea that maybe you could disperse the hurricane clouds by launching a nuclear bomb at them so, you know, like assuming that, that Trump is a representative, not so much of something specific to the United States, but of what's going to happen as, you know, the, the people that design these systems that on some level knew they weren't totalizing, you know, that understood that there was like a useful fiction aspect to everything are supplanted by people that have been raised in this milieu and believe in it wholeheartedly. You know that that you might get people in there that that you know are not like they don't realize. No, you don't actually use the nuclear bomb. It's there, you know. It serves a functional purpose other than its actual use. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's. I mean, to me, it does seem entirely possible that 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 something, some kind of conflagration, could happen entirely because somebody got an idiot in there. You mm-hmm. know, um, I mean, maybe just. T- you know to see the the outcomes of that we could i i have like the last three chapters here it's about five or six pages we could read that and go out on a, on a high literary note here
1: yeah let's do that uh, why, don't, why don't you read that
0: okay so we'll start chapter 125 the tasmanians mm. when i found little newt painting a blasted landscape a quarter of a mile from the cave he asked me if i would drive him into bolivar to forage for plants he couldn't drive him for paints He couldn't drive himself, he couldn't reach the pedals. So off we went and on the way I asked him if he had any sex urge left. I mourned that I had none, no dreams in that line, nothing. I used to dream of women 20, 30, 40 feet tall, he told me, but now, God, I can't even remember what my Ukrainian midget looked like. I recalled the thing I had read about the Aboriginal Tasmanians, habitually naked persons who, when encountered by white men in the 17th century, were strangers to agriculture, animal husbandry, architecture of any sort, and possibly even fire. They were so contemptible in the eyes of white men by reason of their ignorance, that they were hunted for sport by the first settlers who were convicts from England. And the Aborigines found life so unattractive that they gave up reproducing. I suggested to Newt now that it was a similar hopelessness that had unmanned us. Newt made a shrewd observation. I guess all the excitement in bed had more to do with excitement about keeping the human race going than anybody ever imagined. Of course, if we had a woman of breeding age among us, that might change the situation radically. Poor old Hazel is years beyond having even a Mongolian idiot. Newt revealed that he knew quite a lot about Mongolian idiots. Uh, He had once attended a special school for grotesque children, and several of his schoolmates had been Mongoloids. The best writer in our class was a, a Mongoloid named Myrna. I mean, penmanship, not what she actually wrote down. God, I haven't thought about her in for years. Was it a good school? All I remember is what the headmaster used to say all the time. He was always bawling us out over the loudspeaker system for some mess we'd made, and he always started out the same way. I am sick and tired. That comes pretty close to describing how I feel most of the time. Maybe that's the way you're supposed to feel. You talk like a Boconinus, Newt. Why shouldn't I? As far as I know, Boconanism is the only religion that has any commentary on midgets. When I hadn't been writing, I'd been poring over the books of Boconan, but the references to midgets had escaped me. I was grateful to Newt for calling it to my attention, for the quotation captured in a couplet, the cruel paradox of Boconanist thought. The heartbreaking necessity of lying about reality and the heartbreaking impossibility of lying about it. Midget, 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 how he struts and winks, for he knows a man's as big as what he hopes and thinks. Chapter 126, soft type pipes play on. Such a depressing religion, I cried. I directed our conversation into the area of utopias, of what might have been, of what should have been, of what might yet be if the world would thaw. But Bakonin had been there too, had written a whole book about utopias, the seventh book, which he called Bocconin's Republic. In that book are these ghastly aphorisms. The hand that stocks the drugstores rules the world. Let us start our republic with a chain of drugstores, a chain of grocery stores, a chain of gas chambers, and a national game. After that, we can write our constitution. (laughs) I called Baconan a jigaboo bastard, and I changed the subject again. I spoke of meaningful, individual, heroic acts. I praised in particular the way in which Julian Castle and his son had chosen to die. While the tornadoes still raged, they had set out on foot for the house of hope and mercy in the jungle to give whatever hope and mercy was theirs to give. And I saw magnificence in the way poor Angela had died, too. She had picked up a clarinet in the ruins of Bolivar and had begun to play it at once, without concerning herself as to whether the mouthpiece might be contaminated with Ice Nine. Soft pipes play on, I murmured huskily. Well, maybe you can find some we- some neat way to die, too, said Newt. It was a Boconanist thing to say. I blurted out my dream of climbing Mount McCabe with some magnificent symbol and planting it there. I took my hands from the wheel for an instant to show him how empty of symbols they were. But what in hell would the right symbol be, Newt? What in hell would it be? I grabbed the wheel again. Here it is, the end of the world, and here I am, almost the last man, and there it is, the highest mountain in sight. I know now what my caress has been up to, Newt. It's been working night and day for maybe half a million years to get me up that mountain. I wagged my head and nearly wept. But what, for the love of God, is supposed to be in my hands? I looked out of the car window blindly as I asked that, so blindly that I went more than a mile before realizing that I had looked into the eyes of a Negro man, a living colored man, who was sitting by the side of the road. And then I slowed down, and then I stopped. I covered my eyes. What's the matter, asked Newt. I saw Bokonan back there. He was sitting on a rock. He was barefoot. Sorry, this is chapter 127, the end. He was sitting on a rock. He was barefoot. His feet were frosty with ice eye. His only garment was a white bedspread with blue tufts. The tufts said Casa Mona. He took no note of our arrival. In one hand was a pencil, and the other was paper. Bokonin? Yes. May I ask what you're thinking? I am thinking, young man, about the final sentence for the book of Bokonan. The time for the final sentence has come. Any luck? He shrugged and handed me a piece of paper. This is what I read. If I were a younger man, I would write a history of human stupidity. And I would climb to the top of Mount McCabe and lie down on my back with my history for a pillow. And I would take from the ground some of the blue-white poison that makes statues of men. And I would make a statue of myself lying on my back, grinning horribly, and thumbing my nose at you-know-who.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a kind of, like, you know, uh, reflexive ending, right? I mean, you know, uh, some of the blue-white poison, right, Uh, the Ice Nine that makes statues of men. You know on the one hand like this concept of like petrification in a negative sense but also you know champions them in some ways right i mean like the atomic bomb like all of that like entering you know the, the 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 human myth right of like people that have contributed something um and yeah i mean it's 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 a it's a really a good ending and uh a, a nice uh ending to a really great book
0: mm-hmm. well and, and it's you know it, it, it's it's a book that only the, uh, like the uh, an interest uh, a great thing about Vonnegut books I guess this is true of all great art but because of the way he writes so simply deceptively simply like Vonnegut his good stuff only gets better every time mm-hmm. you read it so if anybody is watching this that has not read this book before Read it, reflect on it, take a couple of years and then read it again because you'll find something new.
1: And then watch this uh, podcast again because I'm sure that we say tons of intelligent shit that you're not going to get elsewhere. Which, by the way, if you're watching this and you haven't hit like, please hit like. If you haven't subscribed, please do so now. Uh, it is very, very helpful. Uh, thank you for sticking with us all this time. Um, I think I should go get some sleep.
0: Yeah, I got to go walk the dog. Oh, my God.